Chapter Forty Six of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter Forty Six. Stop him. Darkness rests upon Tom all alone's. Dilating and dilating since the sun went down last night, it has gradually swelled until it fills every void in the place. For a time there were some dungeon lights burning, as the lamp of life hums in Tom all alone's, heavily, heavily in the nauseous air, and winking, as that lamp too winks in Tom all alone's, at many horrible things. But they are blotted out. The moon has eyed Tom with a dull, cold stare, as admitting some puny emulation of herself, in his desert region, unfit for life, and blasted by volcanic fires, but she has passed on, and is gone. The blackest nightmare in the infernal stables grazes on Tom all alone's, and Tom is fast asleep. Much mighty speech-making there has been, both in and out of Parliament, concerning Tom, and much wrathful disputation how Tom should be got right, whether he shall be put into the main road by constables, or by beadles, or by bell-ringing, or by force of figures, or by correct principles of taste, or by high church, or by low church, or by no church, whether he shall be set to splitting trusses of polemical straws with the crooked knife of his mind, or whether he shall be put to stone-breaking instead. In the midst of which dust and noise there is but one thing perfectly clear, to wit, that Tom only may and can, or shall and will, be reclaimed according to somebody's theory, but nobody's practice. And in the hopeful meantime, Tom goes to perdition, head foremost, in his old determined spirit. But he has his revenge, even the winds are his messengers, and they serve him in these hours of darkness. There is not a drop of Tom's corrupted blood, but propagates infection and contagion somewhere. It shall pollute, this very night, the choice stream in which chemists on analysis would find the genuine nobility of a Norman house, and his grace shall not be able to say nay to the infamous alliance. There is not an atom of Tom's slime, not a cubic inch of any pestilential gas in which he lives, not one obscenity or degradation about him, not an ignorance, not a wickedness, not a brutality of his committing, but shall work its retribution through every order of society, up to the proudest of the proud, and to the highest of the high. Verily, what with tainting, plundering, and spoiling, Tom has his revenge. It is a moot point whether Tom all alones be uglier by day or by night, but on the argument that the more that is seen of it, the more shocking it must be, and that no part of it left to the imagination is at all likely to be made so bad as the reality, day carries it. The day begins to break now, and in truth it might be better for the national glory even that the sun should sometimes set upon the British dominions, than that it should ever rise upon so vile a wonder as Tom. A brown sunburnt gentleman, who appears in some inaptitude for sleep, to be wandering abroad rather than counting the hours on a restless pillow, strolls hitherward at this quiet time. Attracted by curiosity, he often pauses and looks about him, up and down the miserable byways. Nor is he merely curious, for in his bright dark eye there is compassionate interest, and as he looks here and there, he seems to understand such wretchedness, and to have studied it before. On the banks of the stagnant channel of mud, which is the main street of Tom All Alone's, 
Nothing is to be seen but the crazy houses, shut up and silent. No waking creature, save himself, appears except in one direction, where he sees the solitary figure of a woman sitting on a doorstep. He walks that way. Approaching, he observes that she has journeyed a long distance and is foot-sore and travel-stained. She sits on the doorstep in the manner of one who is waiting, with her elbow on her knee and her head upon her hand. Beside her is a canvas bag or bundle she has carried. She is dozing, probably, for she gives no heed to his steps as he comes towards her. The broken footway is so narrow that when Allan Woodcourt comes to where the woman sits, he has to turn into the road to pass her. Looking down at her face, his eye meets hers, and he stops. "'What is the matter?' "'Nothing, sir.' "'Can't you make them hear? Do you want to be let in?' "'I'm waiting till they get up at another house, a lodging-house, not here,' the woman patiently returns. "'I'm waiting here because there will be sun here presently to warm me.' "'I'm afraid you are tired. I'm sorry to see you sitting in the street.' "'Thank you, sir. It don't matter.' A habit in him of speaking to the poor— and of avoiding patronage or condescension or childishness, which is the favourite device many people deem it quite a subtlety to talk to them like little spelling-books, has put him on good terms with the woman easily. "'Let me look at your forehead,' he says, bending down. "'I am a doctor. Don't be afraid. I wouldn't hurt you for the world.' He knows that by touching her with his skilful and accustomed hand he can soothe her yet more readily. She makes a slight objection, saying, "'It's nothing.' But he has scarcely laid his fingers on the wounded place when she lifts it up to the light. "'Aye, a bad bruise and the skin sadly broken. This must be very sore.' "'It do ache a little, sir,' returns the woman, with a started tear upon her cheek. "'Let me try to make it more comfortable. My handkerchief won't hurt you.' "'Oh, dear, no, sir, I'm sure of that.' He cleanses the injured place and dries it, and, having carefully examined it, and gently pressed it with the palm of his hand, takes a small case from his pocket, dresses it, and binds it up. While he is thus employed, he says, after laughing at his establishing a surgery in the street, "'And so your husband is a brickmaker?' "'How do you know that, sir?' asks the woman, astonished. "'Why, I suppose so, from the colour of the clay upon your bag and on your dress. And I know brickmakers go about working at piecework in different places. And I am sorry to say I have known them cruel to their wives, too.' The woman hastily lifts up her eyes, as if she would deny that her injury is referable to such a cause. But feeling the hand upon her forehead, and seeing his busy and composed face, she quietly drops them again. "'Where is he now?' asked the surgeon. "'He got into trouble last night, sir, but he'll look for me at the lodging-house.' "'He will get into worse trouble if he often misuses his large and heavy hand, as he has misused it here. But you forgive him, brutal as he is, and I say no more of him, except that I wish he deserved it. You have no young child?' The woman shakes her head. "'One's I calls mine, sir, but it's Lizzie's. "'Your own is dead, I see. Poor little thing.' By this time he is finished, and is putting up his case. "'I suppose you have some settled home. 
"'Is it far from here?' he asks, good-humouredly, making light of what he has done as she gets up and curtsies. "'It's a good two or three and twenty mile from here, sir, at St. Albans. You know St. Albans, sir? I thought you gave a start like as if you did.' "'Yes, I know something of it. And now I will ask you a question in return. Have you money for your lodging?' "'Oh, yes, sir,' she says, really and truly. And she shows it. He tells her, in acknowledgment of her many subdued thanks, that she is very welcome, gives her a good day, and walks away. Tom all alone is still asleep, and nothing is astir. Yes, something is. As he retraces his way to the point from which he descried the woman at a distance, sitting on the step, he sees a ragged figure coming very cautiously along, crouching close to the soiled walls, which the wretchedest figure might as well avoid, and furtively thrusting a hand before it. It is the figure of a youth, whose face is hollow, and whose eyes have an emaciated glare. He is so intent on getting along unseen, that even the apparition of a stranger, in whole garments, does not tempt him to look back. He shades his face with his ragged elbow as he passes on the other side of the way, and goes shrinking and creeping on with his anxious hand before him, and his shapeless clothes hanging in shreds. Clothes made for what purpose, or of what material, it would be impossible to say. They look in colour and in substance like a bundle of rank leaves of swampy growth that rotted long ago. Alan Woodcourt pauses to look after him, and note all this, with a shadowy belief that he has seen the boy before. He cannot recall how or where, but there is some association in his mind with such a form. He imagines that he must have seen it in some hospital or refuge, still cannot make out why it comes with any special force on his remembrance. He is gradually emerging from Tom all alone's in the morning light, thinking about it, when he hears running feet behind him, and looking round, sees the boy scouring towards him at great speed, followed by the woman. "'Stop him! Stop him!' cries the woman, almost breathless. "'Stop him, sir!' He darts across the road into the boy's path, but the boy is quicker than he, makes a curve, ducks, dives under his hands, comes up half a dozen yards beyond him, and scours away again. Still the woman follows, crying, "'Oh, stop him, sir! Pray, stop him!' Alan, not knowing but that he has just robbed her of her money, follows in chase and runs so hard that he runs the boy down a dozen times, but each time he repeats the curve, the duck, the dive, and scours away again. To strike at him on any of these occasions would be to fell and disable him, but the pursuer cannot resolve to do that, and so the grimly ridiculous pursuit continues. At last the fugitive, hard-pressed, takes to a narrow passage and a court which has no thoroughfare. Here, against a hoarding of decaying timber, he is brought to bay and tumbles down, lying gasping at his pursuer, who stands and gasps at him until the woman comes up. "'Oh, you, Joe!' cries the woman. "'What? I found you at last!' "'Joe?' repeats Alan, looking at him with attention. "'Joe? Stay, to be sure!' "'I recollect this lad some time ago, being brought before the coroner.' <sighs> "'Yes, I see you once afore at the inkwitch,' whimpers Joe. "'What of that? Can't you never let such an unfortunate as me alone?' 
and i unfortunate enough for you yet how unfortunate do you want me to be for to be i've been a chivied and a chivied fussed by one on you and nixed by another on you till i'm worrited to skin and bones the ink which warn't my fault i done nothing he was very good to me he was he was the only one i know to speak to as ever come across my crossing and ain't very likely i should want him to be inkwitched i only wish i was myself i don't know why i don't go and make a hole in the water i'm sure i don't he says it with such a pitiable air and his grimy tears appear so real and he lies in the corner up against the hoarding so like a growth of fungus or any unwholesome excrescence produced there in neglect and impurity that alan woodcourt is softened towards him he says to the woman miserable creature what has he done to which she only replies shaking her head at the prostrate figure more amazedly than angrily oh you joe you joe i found you at last what has he done says alan has he robbed you no sir no robbed me he did nothing but what was kind-hearted by me and that's the wonder of it alan looks from joe to the woman and from the woman to joe waiting for one of them to unravel the riddle but he was along with me sir says the woman oh you joe he was along with me sir down at st albans ill and a young lady lord bless her for a good friend to me took pity on him when i durstn't and took him home alan shrinks back from him with a sudden horror yes sir yes took him home and made him comfortable and like a thankless monster he ran away in the night and never has been seen or heard of since till i set eyes on him just now and that young lady that was such a pretty dear caught his illness lost her beautiful looks and wouldn't hardly be known for the same young lady now if it wasn't for her angel temper and her pretty shape and her sweet voice do you know it you ungrateful wretch do you know that this is all along of you and of her goodness to you demands the woman beginning to rage at him as she recalls it and breaking into passionate tears the boy, in rough sort, stunned by what he hears, falls to smearing his dirty forehead with his dirty palm, and to staring at the ground, and to shaking from head to foot, until the crazy hoarding against which he leans rattles. Alan restrains the woman, merely by a quiet gesture, but effectually. "'Richard told me,' he falters, "'I mean, I have heard of this. Don't mind me for a moment.' I will speak presently." He turns away, and stands for a while looking out at the covered passage. When he comes back, he has recovered his composure. Except that he contends against an avoidance of the boy, which is so very remarkable that it absorbs the woman's attention. "'You hear what she says. But get up, get up!' Joe, shaking and chattering, 
slowly rises and stands, after the manner of his tribe in a difficulty, sideways against the hoarding, resting one of his high shoulders against it, and covertly rubbing his right hand over his left, and his left foot over his right. "'You hear what she says, and I know it's true. Have you been here ever since?' "'Wish it may die, if I see Tom all alones till this blessed morning,' replies Joe hoarsely. "'Why have you come here now?' Joe looks all around the confined court, looks at his questioner no higher than the knees, and finally answers, "'I don't know how to do nothing, and I can't get nothing to do.' i worry poor and ill and i thought i'd come back here when there warn't nobody about and lay down and hide somewheres as i knows on till arter dark and then go and beg a trifle of mr snagsby he was allus willing for to give me something he was though mrs snagsby she was allus a chivying on me like everybody everywheres where have you come from joe looks all round the court again looks at his questioner's knees again and concludes by laying his profile against the hoarding in a sort of resignation did you hear me ask you where you have come from tramp then says joe now tell me proceeds Alan, making a strong effort to overcome his repugnance, going very near to him, and leaning over him with an expression of confidence. "'Tell me how it came about that you left that house, when the good young lady had been so unfortunate as to pity you, and take you home.' Joe suddenly comes out of his resignation, and excitedly declares, addressing the woman, that he never known about the young lady, that he never hearn about it, that he never went fur to hurt her, that he would sooner have hurt his own self, that he'd sooner have had his unfortunate head chopped off than ever gone anigh her, and that she was very good to him, she was. Conducting himself throughout, as if in his poor fashion, he really meant it, and winding up with some very miserable sobs. Alan Woodcourt sees that this is not a sham. He constrains himself to touch him. "'Come, Joe, tell me.' "'No, I doesn't,' says Joe, relapsing to the profile state. "'I doesn't, or I would.' "'But I must know,' returns the other, "'all the same. Come, Joe.' After two or three such adjurations, Joe lifts up his head again, looks round the court again, and says in a low voice, "'Well, I'll tell you something. I was took away there took away in the night ah oh. very apprehensive of being overheard joe looks about him and even glances up some ten feet at the top of the hoarding and through the cracks in it lest the object of his distrust should be looking over or hidden on the other side who took you away i doesn't name him says joe i doesn't do it sir but i want in the young lady's name to know you may trust me no one else shall hear ah oh, but i don't know 
replies Joe, shaking his head fearfully, as he don't hear. Why, he is not in this place. Oh, ain't he, though, says Joe. He's in all manner places, all at once. Alan looks at him in perplexity, but discovers some real meaning and good faith at the bottom of this bewildering reply. He patiently awaits an explicit answer, and Joe, more baffled by his patience than by anything else, at last desperately whispers a name in his ear. Ay, says Alan, why? What had you been doing? Nothing, sir. Never done nothing to get myself into no trouble, except in not moving on and the ink witch. But I'm a moving on now. I'm a moving on to the burying ground. That's the move as I'm up to. No, no, we will try to prevent that. But what did he do with you? Put me in a hospital, replied Joe, whispering. Till I was discharged, then give me a little money. Four half balls, or you may call half crowns, and says, Hook it. Nobody wants you here, he says. You hook it. You go and tramp, he says. You move on, he says. Don't let me ever see you nowheres within forty mile of London, or you'll repent it. So I shall, if ever he does see me, and he'll see me if I'm above ground, concludes Joe, nervously repeating all his former precautions and investigations. Alan considers a little then remarks, turning to the woman, but keeping an encouraging eye on Joe, "'He is not so ungrateful as you suppose. He had a reason for going away, though it was an insufficient one.' "'Thank ye, sir, thank ye,' exclaims Joe. "'There now, see how hard you was upon me. But only you tell the young lady what the gentleman says.' and it's all right for you was very good to me and i knows it now joe says alan keeping his eye upon him come with me and i will find you a better place than this to lie down and hide in if i take one side of the way and you the other to avoid observation you will not run away i know very well if you make me a promise i won't not unless I was to see him, I come in, sir. Very well. I take your word. Half the town is getting up by this time, and the whole town will be broad awake in another hour. Come along. Good day again, my good woman. Good day again, sir, and I, I thank you kindly many times again. She has been sitting on her bag, deeply attentive, and now rises and takes it up. Joe repeating, "'Only you tell the young lady, as I never went for to hurt her, and what the gentleman says.' Nods and shambles and shivers and smears and blinks and half laughs and half cries a farewell to her, 
and takes his creeping way along after Allan Woodcourt, close to the houses on the opposite side of the street. In this order, the two come up, out of Tom All Alone's, into the broad rays of the sunlight and the purer air. End of chapter 46《Chapter Forty Seven of Bleak House》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter Forty Seven. Joe's Will. As Alan Woodcourt and Joe proceed along the streets where the high church spires and the distances are so near and clear in the morning light that the city itself seems renewed by rest. Alan revolves in his mind how and where he shall bestow his companion. It surely is a strange fact, he considers, that in the heart of a civilized world this creature, in human form, should be more difficult to dispose of than an unowned dog. But it is none the less a fact, because of its strangeness, and the difficulty remains. At first he looks behind him often, to assure himself that Joe is still really following. But look where he will, he still beholds him close to the opposite houses, making his way with his wary hand from brick to brick and from door to door, and often, as he creeps along, glancing over at him watchfully. Soon satisfied that the last thing in his thoughts is to give him the slip, Alan goes on, considering with a less divided attention what he shall do. A breakfast stall at a street corner suggests the first thing to be done. He stops there, looks round, and beckons Joe. Joe crosses and comes halting and shuffling up, slowly scooping the knuckles of his right hand round and round in the hollowed palm of his left, kneading dirt with a natural pestle and mortar. What is a dainty repast to Joe is then set before him, and he begins to gulp the coffee and to gnaw the bread and butter, looking anxiously about him in all directions as he eats and drinks, like a scared animal. But he is so sick and miserable that even hunger has abandoned him. I thought I was almost a starving, sir, says Joe, soon putting down his food. But I don't know nothing, not even that. I don't care for eating whittles, nor yet for drinking on them. And Joe stands shivering and looking at the breakfast wonderingly. Alan Woodcourt lays his hand upon his pulse and on his chest. "'Draw breath, Joe.' "'It draws,' says Joe, as heavy as a cart he might add, and rattles like it, but he only mutters, "'I'm a-moving on, sir.' Alan looks about for an apothecary's shop. There is none at hand, but a tavern does as well or better.' He obtains a little measure of wine, and gives the lad a portion of it very carefully. He begins to revive almost as soon as it passes his lips. "'We may repeat that doze, Joe,' observes Alan, after watching him with his attentive face. "'So, now we will take five minutes' rest, and then go on again.' Leaving the boy sitting on the bench of the breakfast stall, with his back against an iron railing, Alan Woodcourt paces up and down in the early sunshine, casting an occasional look towards him without appearing to watch him. 
it requires no discernment to perceive that he is warmed and refreshed. If a face so shaded can brighten, his face brightens somewhat, and by little and little he eats the slice of bread he had so hopelessly laid down. Observant of these signs of improvement, Allan engages him in conversation, and elicits, to his no small wonder, the adventure of the lady in the veil, with all its consequences. Joe slowly munches as he slowly tells it. When he has finished his story, and his bread, they go on again. Intending to refer his difficulty in finding a temporary place of refuge for the boy to his old patient, zealous little Miss Flight, Allan leads the way to the court where he and Joe first foregathered. But all is changed at the rag-and-bottle shop. Miss Flight no longer lodges there. It is shut up. And a hard-featured female, much obscured by dust, whose age is a problem, but who is indeed no other than the interesting Judy, is tart and spare in her replies. These sufficing, however, to inform the visitor that Miss Flight and her birds are domiciled with a Mrs. Blinder, in Bell Yard, he repairs to that neighbouring place, where Miss Flight, who rises early that she may be punctual at the divan of justice held by her excellent friend the Chancellor, comes running downstairs with tears of welcome and with open arms. "'My dear physician,' cries Miss Flight, "'my meritorious, distinguished, honourable officer,' She uses some odd expressions, but is as cordial and full of heart as sanity itself can be, more so than it often is. Allan, very patient with her, waits until she has no more raptures to express, then points out Joe, trembling in a doorway, and tells her how he comes there. "'Where can I lodge him hereabouts for the present? Now you have a fund of knowledge and good sense, and can advise me.' "'Miss Flight,' mighty proud of the compliment, sets herself to consider, but it is long before a bright thought occurs to her. Mrs. Blinder is entirely let, and she herself occupies poor Gridley's room. "'Gridley!' exclaims Miss Flight, clapping her hands after twentieth repetition of this remark. "'Gridley! Oh, to be sure, of course, my dear physician, General George will help us out.' It is hopeless to ask for any information about General George, and would be, though Miss Flight had not already run upstairs to put on her pinched bonnet and her poor little shawl, and to arm herself with a reticule of documents. But as she informs her physician, in her disjointed manner, on coming down in full array, that General George, whom she often calls upon, knows her dear Fitzjarndyce, and takes a great interest in all connected with her, Allan is induced to think that they may be in the right way. So he tells Joe, for his encouragement, that this walking about will soon be over now, and they repair to the General's. Fortunately, it is not far. From the exterior of George's shooting-gallery, and the long entry, and the bare perspective beyond it, Alan Woodcourt augurs well. He also descries promise in the figure of Mr. George himself, striding towards them in his morning exercise, with his pipe in his mouth, no stock on, and his muscular arms, developed by broadsword and dumbbell, weightily asserting themselves through his light shirt-sleeves. "'Your servant, sir,' says Mr. George, with a military salute. Good-humouredly smiling all over his broad forehead, up into his crisp hair, he then defers to Miss Flight, as, with great stateliness, and at some length, she performs the courtly ceremony of presentation. He winds it up with another, 
your servant, sir, and another salute. Excuse me, sir. A sailor, I believe, says Mr. George. I am proud to find I have the air of one, returns Alan, but I am only a sea-going doctor. Indeed, sir. I should have thought you was a regular blue jacket myself. Alan hopes Mr. George will forgive his intrusion the more readily on that account, and particularly that he will not lay aside his pipe, which, in his politeness, he has testified some intention of doing. "'You are very good, sir,' returns the trooper, "'as I know by experience that it's not disagreeable to Miss Flight, and since it's equally agreeable to yourself,' and finishes the sentence by putting it between his lips again. Alan proceeds to tell him all he knows about Joe, unto which the trooper listens with a grave face. "'And that's the lad, sir, is it?' he inquires, looking along the entry to where Joe stands, staring up at the great letters on the whitewashed front, which have no meaning in his eyes. "'That's he,' says Alan. "'And Mr. George, I am in this difficulty about him. I am unwilling to place him in a hospital, even if I could procure him immediate admission, because I foresee that he would not stay there many hours if he could be so much as got there. The same objection applies to a workhouse.' Supposing I had the patience to be evaded and shirked, and handed about from post to pillar, in trying to get him into one, which is a system that I don't take kindly to. "'No man does, sir,' returns Mr. George. "'I am convinced that he would not remain in either place, because he is possessed by an extraordinary terror of this person who ordered him to keep out of the way. In his ignorance he believes this person to be everywhere.' and cognizant of everything. "'I ask your pardon, sir,' says Mr. George, "'but you have not mentioned that party's name. Is it a secret, sir?' "'The boy makes it one, but his name is Bucket.' "'Bucket, the detective, sir?' "'The same man.' "'The man is known to me, sir,' returns the trooper, after blowing out a cloud of smoke and squaring his chest. "'And the boy is so far correct that he undoubtedly is a—' "'Rum customer.' Mr. George smokes with a profound meaning after this, and surveys Miss Flight in silence. "'Now I wish Mr. Jarndyce and Miss Summerson at least to know that this Joe, who tells so strange a story, has reappeared, and to have it in their power to speak with him if they should desire to do so. Therefore I want to get him, for the present moment, into any poor lodging kept by decent people, where he would be admitted.' "'Decent people and Joe, Mr. George,' says Alan, following the direction of the trooper's eyes along the entry, "'have not been much acquainted, as you see. Hence the difficulty. Do you happen to know any one in this neighbourhood who would receive him for a while on my paying for him beforehand?' As he puts the question, he becomes aware of a dirty-faced little man standing at the trooper's elbow, and looking up, with an oddly twisted figure and countenance, into the trooper's face. After a few more puffs at his pipe, the trooper looks down askant at the little man, and the little man winks up at the trooper. "'Well, sir,' says Mr. George, "'I can assure you that I would willingly be knocked on the head at any time, if it would be at all agreeable to Miss Summerson, and consequently I esteem it a privilege to do that young lady any service, however small. We are naturally in the vagabond way here, sir, both myself and Phil. You see what the place is. 
You're welcome to a quiet corner of it for the boy, if the same would meet your views. No charge made, except for rations. We are not in a flourishing state of circumstances here, sir. We are liable to be tumbled out, neck and crop, at a moment's notice. However, sir, such as the place is, and so long as it lasts, here it is at your service. With a comprehensive wave of his pipe, Mr. George places the whole building at his visitor's disposal. "'I take it for granted, sir,' he adds, "'you being one of the medical staff, that there is no present infection about this unfortunate subject.' Alan is quite sure of it. "'Because, sir,' says Mr. George, shaking his head sorrowfully, "'we have had enough of that.' His tone is no less sorrowfully echoed by his new acquaintance. "'Still, I am bound to tell you,' observes Alan, after repeating his former assurance, "'that the boy is deplorably low and reduced, and that he may be—I do not say that he is—too far gone to recover.' "'Do you consider him in present danger, sir?' inquires the trooper. "'Yes, I fear so.' "'Then, sir,' returns the trooper, in a decisive manner, "'it appears to me, being naturally in the vagabond way myself, "'that the sooner he comes out of the street, the better. "'You, Phil, bring him in.' Mr. Squad tacks out, all on one side, to execute the word of command, and the trooper, having smoked his pipe, lays it by. Joe is brought in. He is not one of Mrs. Pardiggle's Tokahoopo Indians. He is not one of Mrs. Jellyby's lambs. Being wholly unconnected with Borriabulagar, he is not softened by distance and unfamiliarity. He is not a genuine foreign-grown savage. He is the ordinary home-made article. Dirty, ugly, disagreeable to all the senses, in body a common creature of the common streets, only in soul a heathen. Homely filth begrimes him, homely parasites devour him, homely sores are in him, homely rags are on him. Native ignorance, the growth of English soil and climate, sinks his immortal nature lower than the beasts that perish. Stand forth, Joe, in uncompromising colours. From the sole of thy foot to the crown of thy head there is nothing interesting about thee. He shuffles slowly into Mr. George's gallery, and stands, huddled together in a bundle, looking all about the floor. He seems to know that they have an inclination to shrink from him, partly for what he is, and partly for what he has caused. He, too, shrinks from them. He is not of the same order of things, not of the same place in creation. He is of no order, and no place, neither of the beasts, nor of humanity. "'Look here, Joe,' says Alan. "'This is Mr. George.' Joe searches the floor for some time longer, then he looks up for a moment, and then down again. "'He is a kind friend to you, for he is going to give you lodging-room here.' Joe makes a scoop with one hand, which is supposed to be a bow. After a little more consideration, and some backing and changing of the foot on which he rests, he mutters that he is very thankful.' "'You are quite safe here. All you have to do at present is to be obedient, and to get strong. And mind you tell us the truth here, whatever you do, Joe.' "'Wish I may die, if I don't, sir,' says Joe, reverting to his favourite declaration. "'I never done nothing yet, but what you knows on.' 
to get myself into no trouble. I never was in no other trouble at all, sir, except not knowing nothing and starvation. I believe it. Now attend to Mr. George. I see he is going to speak to you. My intention merely was, sir, observes Mr. George, amazingly broad and upright, to point out to him where he can lie down and get a thorough good dose of sleep. Now, look here. As the trooper speaks, he conducts them to the other end of the gallery and opens one of the little cabins. There you are, you see. Here is a mattress, and here you may rest on good behaviour as long as Mr. I ask your pardon, sir. He refers apologetically to the card Alan has given him. Mr. Woodcourt, pleases. Don't you be alarmed if you hear shots. They'll be aimed at the target, and not at you. Now, there's another thing I would recommend, sir, says the trooper, turning to his visitor. Phil, come here. Phil bears down upon them according to his usual tactics. Here is a man, sir, who was found, when a baby, in the gutter. Consequently, it is to be expected that he takes a natural interest in this poor creature. You do, don't you, Phil? Certainly and surely I do, Governor, is Phil's reply. Now, I was thinking, sir, says Mr. George, in a martial sort of confidence, as if he were giving his opinion in a council of war at a drumhead, that if this man was to take him to a bath, and was to lay out a few shillings to get him one or two coarse articles, Mr. George, my considerate friend, returns Alan, taking out his purse, it is the very favour I would have asked. Phil Squad and Joe are sent out immediately on this work of improvement. Miss Flight, quite enraptured by her success, makes the best of her way to court, having great fears that otherwise her friend the Chancellor may be uneasy about her, or may give the judgment she has so long expected in her absence, and observing, "'Which you know, my dear physician and general, after so many years would be too absurdly unfortunate.' Alan takes the opportunity of going out to procure some restorative medicines, and obtaining them near at hand, soon returns to find the trooper walking up and down the gallery, and to fall into step and walk with him. "'I take it, sir,' says Mr. George, "'that you know Miss Summerson pretty well.' "'Yes, it appears.' "'Not related to her, sir?' "'No, it appears.' "'Excuse the apparent curiosity.' says Mr. George, it seemed to me probable that you might take more than a common interest in this poor creature, because Miss Summerson had taken that unfortunate interest in him. Tis my case, sir, I assure you. And mine, Mr. George. The trooper looks sideways at Alan's sunburnt cheek and bright dark eye, rapidly measures his height and build, and seems to approve of him. Since you've been out, sir, I've been thinking that I unquestionably know the rooms in Lincoln's Inn Fields, where Bucket took the lad, according to his account. Though he's not acquainted with the name, I can help you to it. It's Tolkienhorn. That's what it is. Alan looks at him inquiringly, repeating the name. Tolkienhorn. That's the name, sir. I know the man, and know him to have been in communication with Bucket before, respecting a deceased person who had given him offence. I know the man, sir, to my sorrow. Alan naturally asks what kind of man he is. What kind of man? You mean to look at? 
I think I know that much of him. I mean to deal with, generally, what kind of a man. Why, then, I'll tell you, sir, returns the trooper, stopping short and folding his arms on his square chest so angrily that his face fires and flushes all over. He is a confoundedly bad kind of man. He is a slow, torturing kind of man. He is no more like flesh and blood than a rusty old carbine is. He is a kind of man, by George, as caused me more restlessness and more uneasiness and more dissatisfaction with myself than all other men put together. That's the kind of man Mr. Tulkinghorn is. I am sorry, says Alan, to have touched so sore a place. Sore? The trooper plants his legs wider apart, wets the palm of his broad right hand, and lays it on the imaginary moustache. "'It's no fault of yours, sir, but you shall judge. He has got a power over me. He is the man I spoke of just now, was being able to tumble me out of this place neck and crop. He keeps me on a constant seesaw. He won't hold off, and he won't come on. If I have a payment to make him, or time to ask him for, or anything to go to him about, he don't see me, don't hear me, passes me on to Melchizedek's in Clifford's Inn. Melchizedek's in Clifford's Inn passes me back again to him. He keeps me prowling and dangling about him, as if I was made of the same stone as himself. Why, I spend half my life now pretty well, loitering and dodging about his door. What does he care? Nothing just as much as the rusty old carbine I have compared him to. He chafes and goads me till— <sighs> oh, Nonsense! Oh, I I'm forgetting myself, Mr. Woodcourt. The trooper resumes his march. All I can say is, he is an old man, but I am glad I shall never have the chance of setting spurs to my horse and riding at him in a fair field, for if I had that chance, in one of the humours he drives me into— He'd go down, sir. Mr. George has been so excited that he finds it necessary to wipe his forehead on his shirt-sleeve. Even while he whistles his impetuosity away with the national anthem, some involuntary shakings of his head and heavings of his chest still linger behind, not to mention an occasional hasty adjustment with both hands of his open shirt-collar, as if it were scarcely open enough to prevent his being troubled by a choking sensation. In short, Alan Woodcourt has not much doubt about the going down of Mr. Tulkinghorn on the field referred to. Joe and his conductor presently return, and Joe is assisted to his mattress by the careful Phil, to whom, after due administration of medicine by his own hands, Alan confides all needful means and instructions. The morning is by this time getting on apace. He repairs to his lodgings to dress and breakfast, and then, without seeking rest, goes away to Mr. Jarndyce to communicate his discovery. With him Mr. Jarndyce returns alone, confidentially telling him that there are reasons for keeping this matter very quiet indeed, and showing a serious interest in it. To Mr. Jarndyce, Joe repeats in substance what he said in the morning, without any material variation. Only that cart of his is heavier to draw, and draws with a hollower sound. Ah! Let me lay here quiet, and not be chivied no more, falters Joe, and be so kind any person as 
is a passing nigh where i used fur to sleep as just to say to mr sangsby that joe what he known once is a moving on right forrards with his duty and i'll be very thankful uh, i'd be more thankful than i am already if it was anyways possible for an unfortunate to be it he makes so many of these references to the law stationer in the course of a day or two that alan after conferring with mr jarndyce good-naturedly resolves to call in cook's court the rather as the cart seems to be breaking down to cook's court therefore he repairs mr snagsby is behind his counter in his grey coat and sleeves inspecting an indenture of several skins which has just come in from the engrossers an immense desert of law-hand and parchment with here and there a resting place of a few large letters to break the awful monotony and save the traveller from despair mr snagsby puts up at one of these inky wells and greets the stranger with his cough of general preparation for business you don't remember me mr snagsby the stationer's heart begins to thump heavily for his old apprehensions have never abated it is as much as he can do to answer <coughs> no sir i can't say i do i should have considered not to put too fine a point upon it that i never saw you before sir twice before says alan woodcourt once at a poor bedside and once it's come at last thinks the afflicted stationer as recollection breaks upon him it's got to a head now and is going to burst but he has sufficient presence of mind to conduct his visitor into the little counting-house and to shut the door <coughs> are you a married man sir no i am not would you make the attempt though single says mr snagsby in a melancholy whisper to speak as low as you can for my little woman is a listening somewheres or i'll forfeit the business and five hundred pound in deep dejection mr snagsby sits down on his stool with his back against his desk protesting <coughs> i never had a secret of my own sir i can't charge my memory with ever having once attempted to deceive my little woman on my own account since she named the day i wouldn't have done it sir not to put too fine a point upon it i couldn't have done it i durstn't have done it whereas and nevertheless i find myself wrapped round with secrecy and mystery till my life is a burden to me his visitor professes his regret to hear it and asks him does he remember joe mr snagsby answers with a suppressed groan oh don't he <coughs> you couldn't name an individual human being except myself that my little woman is more set and determined against than joe says mr snagsby alan asks why <coughs> why repeats mr snagsby in his desperation clutching at the clump of hair at the back of his bald head how should i know why but you are a single person sir and may you long be spared to ask a married person such a question with this beneficent wish mr snagsby coughs a cough of dismal resignation and submits himself to hear what the visitor has to communicate <coughs> there again 
says Mr. Snagsby, who, between the earnestness of his feelings and the suppressed tones of his voice, is discoloured in the face. "'At it again, in a new direction. A certain person charges me, in the solemnest way, not to talk of Joe to any one, even my little woman. Then comes another certain person, in the person of yourself, and charges me, in an equally solemn way, not to mention Joe to that other certain person above all other persons. Uh, why, this is a, a private asylum. Why, not to put too fine a point upon it, this is Pedlam, sir, says Mr. Snagsby. But it is better than he expected after all, being no explosion of the mine below him, or deepening of the pit into which he has fallen, and being tender-hearted, and affected by the account he hears of Joe's condition, he readily engages to look around, as early in the evening as he can manage it quietly. He looks round very quietly when the evening comes, but it may turn out that Mrs. Snagsby is as quiet a manager as he is. Joe is very glad to see his old friend, and says, when they are left alone, that he takes it uncommon kind, as Mr. Snagsby should come so far out of his way, on accounts of such as him. Mr. Snagsby, touched by the spectacle before him, immediately lays upon the table half a crown, that magic balsam of his for all kinds of wounds. "'And how do you find yourself, my poor lad?' inquires the stationer, with his cough of sympathy. "'I'm in luck, Mr. Snagsby, I am,' returns Joe, "'and don't want for nothing.' "'I'm more comfortabler, nor you can't think, Mr. Sangsby. "'I'm very sorry that I done it, but I didn't go for to do it, sir.' "'The stationer softly lays down another half-crown, "'and asks him what it is that he is sorry for having done. "'Mr. Sangsby,' says Joe, "'I went and give her illness.' to the lady as was and yet as want the t'other lady and none of em <clears throat> never says nothing to me for having done it on accounts of their being so good and my having been sunfortunate the lady come herself and see me yesterday and she says oh joe she says we thought we'd lost you joe she says as she sits down a smiling so quiet and don't pass a word nor yet a look upon me for having done it she don't and i turns agin the wall i do's mr sangsby and mr jarnders i see him a forced to turn away his own self and mr woodcock he come for to give me something for to ease me what he's allus a doing on and day and night and when he comes a bending over me and a speaking up so bold i see his tears a falling mr sangsby the softened stationer deposits another half-crown on the table nothing less than a repetition of that infallible remedy will relieve his feelings. Uh, what 
I was a-thinking on, Mr. Zangsby, proceeds Joe, was as you was able to write very large, perhaps? <coughs> yes, Joe, please God, returns the stationer. Uncommon precious large, perhaps, says Joe with eagerness. <coughs> yes, my poor boy. Joe laughs with pleasure. Odd, oh, I was a thinking on then, Mr. Sanksby was. When I was moved on as fur as ever I could go, and couldn't be moved no further, whether you might be so good, perhaps, as to write out very large, so that any one could see it anywheres, as that I was very truly hearty sorry that I done it, and that I never went for to do it, and that though I didn't know nothing at all, I knowed as Mr. Woodcock once cried over it, and was Alice grieved over it, and that I hoped as he'd be able to forgive me in his mind, if the writing could be made to say it very large, he might. <coughs> it shall say it, Joe, very large. Joe laughs again. Oh, thank you, Mr. Sangby. It's very kind of you, sir, and it makes me more comfortabler nor I was afore. The meek little stationer, with a broken and unfinished cough, slips down his fourth half-crown. He has never been so close to a case requiring so many, and is fain to depart. And Joe and he, upon this little earth, shall meet no more. No more. For the cart, so hard to draw, is near its journey's end, and drags over stony ground. All round the clock it labours up the broken steps, shattered and worn. Not many times can the sun rise and behold it still upon its weary road. Phil Squad, with his smoky gunpowder visage, at once acts as nurse and works as armourer at his little table in a corner, often looking round and saying with a nod of his green baize cap and an encouraging elevation of his one eyebrow, "'Hold up, my boy, hold up!' There, too, is Mr. Jarndyce many a time, and Alan Woodcourt almost always, both thinking much how strangely fate has entangled this rough outcast in the web of very different lives. There, too, the trooper is a frequent visitor, filling the doorway with his athletic figure, and, from his superfluity of life and strength, seeming to shed down temporary vigour upon Joe, who never fails to speak more robustly in answer to his cheerful words. Joe is in a sleep, or in a stupor, to-day, and Alan Woodcourt, newly arrived, stands by him, looking down upon his wasted form. After a while he softly seats himself upon the bedside, with his face towards him, just as he sat in the law-writer's room, and touches his chest and heart. The cart had very nearly given up, but labours on a little more. The trooper stands in the doorway, still and silent. Phil has stopped in a low, clinking noise, with his little hammer in his hand. Mr. Woodcourt looks round, with that grave professional interest and attention on his face, and glancing significantly at the trooper, 
signs to Phil to carry his table out. When the little hammer is next used, there will be a speck of rust upon it. "'Well, Joe, what is the matter? Don't be frightened.' "'I thought,' says Joe, who has started and is looking round, "'I thought I was in Tom all alone's again. Ain't there nobody here but you, Mr. Woodcott?' "'Nobody.' "'And I ain't took back to Tom all alone's. Am I, sir? No. Joe closes his eyes, muttering, I'm very thankful. After watching him closely a little while, Alan puts his mouth very near his ear, and says to him in a low, distinct voice, Joe, did you ever know a prayer? Never knowed nothing, sir. Not so much as one short prayer? "'No, sir, nothing at all. "'Mr. Chadbands, he was a-praying once to Mr. Sangsby's, "'and I heard him, but he sounded as if he was a-speaking to hisself, and not to me. "'He prayed a lot, but I couldn't make out nothing on it. Different times there was another gentleman come down Tom all alone a praying, but they all mostly said as the t'other ones prayed wrong, and all mostly sounding to be a talking to theirselves, or a passing blame on the t'others, and not a talking to us. We never knowed nothing. I never knowed what it was all about. It takes him a long time to say this, and few but an experienced and attentive listener could hear, or, hearing, understand him. After a short relapse into sleep or stupor, he makes, of a sudden, a strong effort to get out of bed. Stay, Joe, what now? It's time for me to go to that there burying ground, sir. He returns with a wild look. Lie down and tell me. What burying ground, Joe? Where they laid him as was very good to me. Very good to me indeed he was. It's time for me to go down to that there burying ground, sir, and ask to be put along with him. I wants to go there and be buried. He used for to say to me, I am as poor as you today, Joe, he says. I wants to tell him that I am as poor as him now, and have come there to be laid along with him. By and by, Joe, by and by. Ah, 
perhaps they wouldn't do it if i was to go myself but will you promise to have me took there sir and laid along with him i will indeed thank ye sir thank ye sir they'll have to get the key of the gate for they can take me in for it's alice locked and there's a step there as i used for a clean with me broom he's turned very dark sir is there any light a-coming it is coming fast joe fast the cart is shaken all to pieces and the rugged road is very near its end joe my poor fellow i hear you sir in the dark but i'm a-groping a-groping let me catch hold of your head joe can you see what i see i'll say anything as you safe sir for i knows it's good our father our father yes that very good sir which art in heaven art in heaven is the light a coming sir it is close at hand hallowed be thy name hallowed be the light is come upon the dark benighted way dead dead your majesty dead my lords and gentlemen dead right reverends and wrong reverends of every order dead men and women born with heavenly compassion in your hearts and dying thus around us every day End of chapter 47「Chapter 48 of Bleak House」This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 48 Closing In the place in lincolnshire has shut its many eyes again and the house in town is awake in lincolnshire the deadlocks of the past doze in their picture frames and the low wind murmurs through the long drawing-room as if they were breathing pretty regularly in town the deadlocks of the present rattle in their fire-eyed carriages through the darkness of the night and the deadlock mercuries with ashes or hair-powder on their heads symptomatic of their great humility loll away the drowsy mornings in the little windows of the hall the fashionable world tremendous orb nearly five miles round is in full swing and the solar system works respectfully at its appointed distances where the throng is thickest where the lights are brightest where all the senses are ministered to with the greatest delicacy and refinement lady dedlock is 
From the shining heights she has scaled and taken, she is never absent. Though the belief she of old reposed in herself, as one able to reserve whatsoever she would under her mantle of pride, is beaten down, though she has no assurance that what she is to those around her she will remain another day, it is not in her nature, when envious eyes are looking on, to yield or to droop. They say of her that she has lately grown more handsome and more haughty. The debilitated cousins say of her that she's beauty nor, to set shop of women, but rather alarming kind, reminding man fact, inconvenient woman, who will get out of bed and borst establishment, Shakespeare. Mr. Tulkinghorn says nothing looks nothing. Now, as heretofore, he is to be found in doorways of rooms, with his limp white cravat loosely twisted into his old-fashioned tie, receiving patronage from the peerage, and making no sign. Of all men, he is still the last, who might be supposed to have any influence upon my lady. Of all women, she is still the last, who might be supposed to have any dread of him. One thing has been much on her mind since their late interview in his turret room at Chesney Wold. She is now decided and prepared to throw it off. It is morning in the great world, afternoon according to the little sun. The Mercuries, exhausted by looking out of window, are reposing in the hall and hang their heavy heads, the gorgeous creatures like overblown sunflowers. Like them, too, there seem to run a deal of seed in their tags and trimmings. Sir Leicester in the library has fallen asleep, for the good of the country, over the report of a parliamentary committee. My lady sits in the room in which she gave audience to the young man of the name of Guppy. Rosa is with her, and has been writing for her, and reading to her. Rosa is now at work upon embroidery, or some such pretty thing, and as she bends her head over it, my lady watches her in silence, not for the first time to-day. Rosa, the pretty village face looks brightly up, then, seeing how serious my lady is, looks puzzled and surprised. See to the door. Is it shut? Yes, she goes to it and returns, and looks yet more surprised. I am about to place confidence in you, child, for I know I may trust your attachment, if not your judgment. In what I am going to do— I will not disguise myself to you at least, but I confide in you. Say nothing to any one of what passes between us. The timid little beauty promises in all earnestness to be trustworthy. Do you know? Lady Dedlock asks her, signing to her to bring her chair nearer. Do you know, Rosa, that I am different to you from what I am to any one? Yes, my lady much kinder. But then I often think I know you as you really are. You often think you know me as I really am. Poor child, poor child. She says it with a kind of scorn, though not of Rosa, and sits brooding, looking dreamily at her. Do you think, Rosa, you are any relief or comfort to me? Do you suppose your being young and natural, and fond of me and grateful to me, makes it any pleasure to me to have you near me? I don't know, my lady. I can scarcely hope so. But with all my heart, I wish it was so. It is so, little one. The pretty face is checked in its flush of pleasure, 
by the dark expression on the handsome face before it. It looks timidly for an explanation. "'And if I were to say to-day, go, leave me, I should say what would give me great pain and disquiet, child, and what would leave me very solitary.' "'Oh, my lady, have I offended you?' "'In nothing. Come here.' Rosa bends down on the footstool at my lady's feet. My lady, with that motherly touch of the famous ironmaster knight, lays her hand upon her dark hair, and gently keeps it there. "'I told you, Rosa, that I wished you to be happy.' and that I would make you so if I could make anybody happy on this earth. I cannot. There are reasons now known to me, reasons in which you have no part, rendering it far better for you that you should not remain here. You must not remain here. I have determined that you shall not. I have written to the father of your lover, and he will be here to-day. All this I have done for your sake." The weeping girl covers her hand with kisses, and says what shall she do, what shall she do, when they are separated. Her mistress kisses her on the cheek, and makes no other answer. Now, be happy, child, under better circumstances. Be beloved and happy. Ah, oh, my lady, I've sometimes thought, forgive my being so free, that you are not happy. I... Will you be more so when you have sent me away? Pray, pray think again. Let me stay a little while. I have said, my child, that what I do, I do for your sake, not my own. It is done. What I am towards you, Rosa, is what I am now, not what I shall be a little while hence. Remember this? and keep my confidence. Do so much for my sake, and thus all ends between us." She detaches herself from her simple-hearted companion, and leaves the room. Late in the afternoon, when she next appears upon the staircase, she is in her haughtiest and coldest state, as indifferent as if all passion, feeling, and interest had been worn out in the earlier ages of the world, and had perished from its surface with its other departed monsters. Mercury has announced Mr. Rouncewell, which is the cause of her appearance. Mr. Rouncewell is not in the library, but she repairs to the library. Sir Leicester is there, and she wishes to speak to him first. Sir Leicester, I am desirous, but you are engaged. No, dear, no, not at all, only Mr. Tulkinghorn. Always at hand, haunting every place, no relief or security from him for a moment. I beg your pardon, Lady Dedlock. Will you allow me to retire? With a look that plainly says, You know you have the power to remain if you will, she tells him it is not necessary, and moves towards a chair. Mr. Tulkinghorn brings it a little forward for her with his clumsy bow, and retires into a window opposite. Interposed between her and the fading light of day in the now quiet street, his shadow falls upon her, and he darkens all before her. Even so does he darken her life. 
It is a dull street, under the best conditions, where the two long rows of houses stare at each other with that severity that half a dozen of its greatest mansions seem to have been slowly stared into stone, rather than originally built in that material. It is a street of such dismal grandeur, so determined not to condescend to liveliness, that the doors and windows hold a gloomy state of their own in black paint and dust, and the echoing mews behind have a dry and massive appearance, as if they were reserved to stable the stone chargers of noble statues. Complicated garnish of ironwork entwines itself over the flights of steps in this awful street, and from these petrified bowers extinguishes for obsolete flambeau, gasp at the upstart gas. Here and there a weak little iron hoop, through which bold boys aspire to throw their friends' caps, its only present use, retains its place among the rusty foliage, sacred to the memory of departed oil. Nay, even oil itself, yet lingering at long intervals in a little absurd glass pot, with a knob in the bottom like an oyster, blinks and sulks at newer lights every night, like its high and dry master in the House of Lords. Therefore there is not much that Lady Dedlock, seated in her chair, could wish to see through the window in which Mr. Tulkinghorn stands. And yet— and yet she sends a look in that direction, as if it were her heart's desire to have that figure moved out of the way. Celeste begs his lady's pardon. She was about to say, "'Only that Mr. Rouncewell is here. He has called by my appointment, and that we had better make an end of the question of that girl. I am tired to death of the matter.' "'What can I do to assist?' demands Sir Leicester, in some considerable doubt. "'Let us see him here, and have done with it. Will you tell them to send him up?' "'Mr. Tulkinghorn, be so good as to ring. Thank you. Request,' says Sir Leicester to Mercury, not immediately remembering the business term, "'request the iron gentleman to walk this way.' Mercury departs in search of the iron gentleman, finds and produces him. Sir Leicester receives that ferruginous person graciously. "'I hope you are well, Mr. Rouncewell. Be seated. My solicitor, Mr. Tulkinghorn. My lady was desirous, Mr. Rouncewell,' Sir Leicester skilfully transfers him with a solemn wave of his hand, "'was desirous to speak with you.' <clears throat> "'I shall be very happy,' returns the iron gentleman." "'to give my best attention to anything Lady Dedlock does me the honour to say.' As he turns towards her, he finds that the impression she makes upon him is less agreeable than on the former occasion. A distant, supercilious air makes a cold atmosphere about her, and there is nothing in her bearing, as there was before, to encourage openness. "'Pray, sir,' says Lady Dedlock listlessly, "'May I be allowed to inquire whether anything has passed between you and your son respecting your son's fancy?' It is almost too troublesome to her languid eyes to bestow a look upon him as she asks this question. "'If my memory serves me, Lady Dedlock,' I said, when I had the pleasure of seeing you before, that I should seriously advise my son to conquer that fancy.' The ironmaster repeats her expression with a little emphasis. "'And did you?' "'Oh, of course I did.' Sir Leicester gives a nod, approving and confirmatory. Very proper. The iron gentleman, having said that he would do it, 
was bound to do it. No difference in this respect between the base metals and the precious. Highly proper. And pray, has he done so? Really, Lady Dedlock, I cannot make you a definite reply. I fear not. Probably not yet. In our condition of life, we sometimes couple an intention with our, our fancies, which renders them not altogether easy to throw off. I think it is rather our way to be in earnest. Sir Leicester has a misgiving that there may be a hidden what Tylerish meaning in this expression, and fumes a little. Mr. Rouncewell is perfectly good-humoured and polite, but within such limits evidently adapts his tone to his reception. Because, proceeds my lady, I have been thinking of the subject, which is tiresome to me. I am very sorry, I am sure. And also of what Sir Leicester said upon it, in which I quite concur. Sir Leicester flattered. And if you cannot give us the assurance that this fancy is at an end, I have come to the conclusion that the girl had better leave me. I can give no such assurance, Lady Dedlock. Nothing of the kind. Then she had better go. Excuse me, my lady, Sir Leicester considerately interposes. But perhaps this may be doing an injury to the young woman, which she has not merited. Here is a young woman, says Sir Leicester, magnificently laying out the matter with his right hand, like a service of plate whose good fortune it is to attract to the notice and favour of an eminent lady, and to live under the protection of that eminent lady, surrounded by the various advantages with such a position confers, and which are unquestionably very great. I believe unquestionably very great, sir, for a young woman in that station of life— and the question then arises, should that young woman be deprived of these many advantages, and that good fortune simply because she has? Sir Leicester, with an apologetic but dignified inclination of his head towards the ironmaster, winds up his sentence. Has attracted the notice of Mr. Rouncewell's son? Now, has she deserved this punishment? Is this just towards her? Is this our previous understanding? I beg your pardon, interposes Mr. Rouncewell's son's father. Sir Leicester, will you allow me? I think I may shorten the subject. Pray dismiss that from your consideration. If you remember anything so unimportant, which is not to be expected, you would recollect that my first thought in the affair was directly opposed to her remaining here. "'Dismiss the deadlock patronage from consideration? "'Oh, Sir Leicester is bound to believe a pair of ears "'that have been handed down to him through such a family, "'or he really might have mistrusted their report "'of the iron gentleman's observations. "'It is not necessary,' observed my lady, "'in her coldest manner, before he could do anything but breathe amazedly, "'to enter into these matters on either side.' The girl is a very good girl. I have nothing whatever to say against her. But she is so far insensible to her many advantages and her good fortune that she is in love, or supposes she is, poor little fool, and unable to appreciate them. Sir Leicester begs to observe that wholly alters the case. 
he might have been sure that my lady had the best grounds and reasons in support of her view. He entirely agrees with my lady. The young woman had better go. As Sir Leicester observed, Mr. Ramswell, on the last occasion when we were fatigued by this business, Lady Dedlock languidly proceeds, we cannot make conditions with you. Without conditions, and under present circumstances, the girl is quite misplaced here, and had better go. I have told her so. Would you wish to have her sent back to the village, or would you like to take her with you, or what would you prefer? Lady Dedlock, if I may speak plainly, by all means. I should prefer the course which will the soonest relieve you of the encumbrance and remove her from her present position. And to speak as plainly, she returns with the same studied carelessness, so should I. Do I understand that you will take her with you? The iron gentleman makes an iron bow. Sir Leicester, will you ring? Mr. Tulkinghorn steps forward from his window and pulls the bell. I had forgotten you. Thank you. He makes his usual bow and goes quietly back again. Mercury, swift responsive, appears, receives instructions whom to produce, skims away, produces the aforesaid, and departs. Rosa has been crying, and is yet in distress. On her coming in, the ironmaster leaves his chair, takes her arm in his, and remains with her near the door, ready to depart. "'You are taken charge of, you see,' says my lady in her weary manner, "'and are going away, well protected. I have mentioned that you are a very good girl, and you have nothing to cry for.' "'She seems, after all,' observes Mr. Tulkinghorn, loitering a little forward with his hands behind him, "'as if she were crying at going away.' "'Why?' "'She is not well-bred, you see,' returns Mr. Rouncewell, with some quickness in his manner, as if he were glad to have the lawyer to retort upon. "'And she is an inexperienced little thing, and knows no better. If she had remained here, sir, she would have improved, no doubt.' "'No doubt,' is Mr. Tulkinghorn's composed reply. Rosa sobs out that she is very sorry to leave my lady, and that she was happy at Chesney Bold and has been happy with my lady, and that she thanks my lady over and over again. "'Out, you silly little puss,' says the ironmaster, checking her in a low voice, though not angrily. "'Have a spirit, if you're fond of what.' My lady merely waves her off with indifference, saying, "'There, there, child. You're a good girl. Go away.' Sir Leicester has magnificently disengaged himself from the subject, and retired into the sanctuary of his blue coat. Mr. Tulkinghorn, an indistinct form against the dark street, now dotted with lamps, looms in my lady's view, bigger and blacker than before. "'Sir Leicester and Lady Dedlock,' says Mr. Rouncewell, after a pause of a few moments, "'I beg to take my leave, with an apology for having again troubled you, though not of my own act, on this tiresome subject. I can very well understand, I assure you, how tiresome so small a matter must have become to Lady Dedlock.' If I am doubtful of my dealing with it, it is only because I did not at first quietly exert my influence to take my young friend here away without troubling you at all. But it appeared to me, I dare say magnifying the importance of the thing, that it was respectful to explain to you how the matter stood, and candid to consult your wishes and convenience. I hope you'll excuse my want of acquaintance with the polite world.' 
Sir Leicester considers himself evoked out of the sanctuary by these remarks. "'Mr. Ronswell,' he returns, "'do not mention it. Justifications are unnecessary, I hope, on either side.' "'I'm glad to hear it, Sir Leicester.' and if I may, by way of a last word, revert to what I said before of my mother's long connection with the family, and the worth it bespeaks on both sides. I would point out this little instance here on my arm, who shows herself so affectionate and faithful in parting, and in whom my mother, I dare say, has done something to awaken such feelings, though, of course, Lady Dedlock, by her heartfelt interest and her genial condescension, has done much more. If he mean this ironically— it may be truer than he thinks. He points it, however, by no deviation from his straightforward manner of speech, though in saying it he turns towards that part of the dim room where my lady sits. Sir Leicester stands to return his parting salutation. Mr. Tulkinghorn again rings. Mercury takes another flight, and Mr. Rouncewell and Rosa leave the house. Then lights are brought in, discovering Mr. Tulkinghorn still standing in his window, with his hands behind him, and my lady still sitting with his figure before her, closing up her view of the night as well as of the day. She is very pale, Mr. Tulkinghorn, observing it as she arises to retire, thinks, well, she may be. The power of this woman is astonishing. She has been acting a part the whole time. But he can act a part, too, his one unchanging character, and as he holds the door open for this woman, fifty pairs of eyes, each fifty times sharper than Sir Leicester's pair, should find no flaw in him. Lady Dedlock dines alone in her own room to-day. Sir Leicester is whipped in to the rescue of the doodle party, and the discomfiture of the coodle faction. Lady Dedlock asks on sitting down to dinner, still deadly pale, and quite an illustration of the debilitated cousin's text, whether he is gone out. Yes. Whether Mr. Tulkinghorn is gone yet? No. Presently she asks again, Is he gone yet? No. What is he doing? Mercury thinks he is writing letters in the library. Would my lady wish to see him? Anything but that. But he wishes to see my lady. Within a few more minutes he is reported as sending his respects, and could my lady please to receive him for a word or two after her dinner? My lady will receive him now. He comes now apologising for intruding, even by her permission, while she is at table. When they are alone, my lady waves her hand to dispense with such mockeries. "'What do you want, sir?' "'Why, Lady Dedlock,' says the lawyer, taking a chair at a little distance from her, and slowly rubbing his rusty legs up and down, up and down, up and down. "'I am rather surprised at the course you have taken.' "'Indeed.' "'Yes, decidedly. I was not prepared for it. I consider it a departure from our agreement and your promise. It puts us in a new position, Lady Dedlock. I feel myself under the necessity of saying that I don't approve of it.' He stops in his rubbing, and looks at her, with his hands on his knees. Imperturbable and unchangeable as he is, there is still an indefinable freedom in his manner which is new and which does not escape this woman's observation. "'I do not quite understand you.' "'Oh, yes, you do, I think. I think you do. Come, come, Lady Dedlock, we must not fence and parry now. You know you like this girl. 
"'Well, sir?' "'And you know, and I know, that you have not sent her away for the reasons you have assigned, but for the purpose of separating her as much as possible from—excuse my mentioning it as a matter of business—any reproach and exposure that impend over yourself.' "'Well, sir?' "'Well, Lady Dedlock,' returns the lawyer, crossing his legs and nursing the uppermost knee, "'I object to that. I consider that a dangerous proceeding. I know it's to be unnecessary and calculated to awake speculation, doubt, rumour, I don't know what, in the house. Besides, it is a violation of our agreement. You were to be exactly what you were before.' whereas it must be evident to yourself as it is to me that you have been this evening very different from what you were before why bless my soul lady dedlock transparently so if sir she begins in my knowledge of my secret but he interrupts her now lady dedlock this is a matter of business and in a matter of business the ground cannot be kept too clear it is no longer your secret. Excuse me, that is just the mistake. It is my secret, in trust for Sir Lester and the family. If it were your secret, Lady Dedlock, we should not be here holding this conversation. That is very true. If in my knowledge of the secret, I do what I can to spare an innocent girl, especially remembering your own reference to her when you told my story to the assembled guests at Chesney Wold. From the taint of my impending shame, I act upon a resolution I have taken. Nothing in the world, and no one in the world, could shake it or could move me. This she says with great deliberation and distinctness, and with no more outward passion than himself. As for him, he methodically discusses his matter of business, as if she were any insensible instrument used in business. "'Really, then you see, Lady Dedlock,' he returns, "'you are not to be trusted. You have put the case in a perfectly plain way, and according to the literal fact, and that being the case, you are not to be trusted.' Perhaps you may remember that I expressed some anxiety on this same point when we spoke at night at Chesney Wold. Yes, says Mr. Tulkinghorn, coolly getting up and standing on the hearth. Yes, I recollect, Lady Dedlock, that you certainly referred to the girl, but that was before we came to our arrangement, and both the letter and the spirit of our arrangement altogether precluded any action on your part founded upon my discovery. There can be no doubt about that. As to sparing the girl, of what importance or value is she? Spare? Lady Dedlock, here is a family name compromised. One might have supposed that the course was straight on, over everything, neither to the right nor to the left, regardless of all considerations in the way, sparing nothing, treading everything underfoot. She has been looking at the table. She lifts up her eyes and looks at him. There is a stern expression on her face, and a part of her lower lip is compressed under her teeth. "'This woman understands me,' Mr. Tulkinghorn thinks, as she lets her glance fall again. "'She cannot be spared. Why should she spare others?' For a little while they are silent. Lady Dedlock has eaten no dinner, but has twice or thrice poured out water, with a steady hand, and drunk it. She rises from the table, takes a lounging chair, and reclines in it, 
shading her face. There is nothing in her manner to express weakness or excite compassion. It is thoughtful, gloomy, concentrated. This woman, thinks Mr. Tulkinghorn, standing on the hearth, again a dark object closing up her view, is a study. He studies her at his leisure, not speaking for a time. She, too, studies something at her leisure. She is not the first to speak, appearing, indeed, so unlikely to be so, though he stood there until midnight, that even he is driven upon breaking silence. "'Lady Dedlock, the most disagreeable part of this business interview remains, but it is business. Our agreement is broken.' A lady of your sense and strength of character will be prepared for my now declaring it void, and taking my own course. I am quite prepared. Mr. Tulkinghorn inclines his head. That is all I have to trouble you with, Lady Dedlock. She stops him as he is moving out of the room by asking, This is the notice I was to receive? I wish not to misapprehend you. "'Not exactly the notice you were to receive, Lady Dedlock, because the contemplated notice supposed the agreement to have been observed. But virtually the same. Virtually the same. The difference is merely in a lawyer's mind.' "'You intend to give me no other notice?' "'You are right. No.' "'Do you contemplate undeceiving Sir Lester to-night?' "'A home question.' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, with a slight smile, and cautiously shaking his head at the shaded face. "'No, not to-night.' "'Tomorrow?' "'All things considered, I had better decline answering that question, Lady Dedlock. If I were to say I don't know when exactly you would not believe me, and it would answer no purpose, it may be to-morrow. I would rather say no more. You are prepared, and I hold out no expectations which circumstances might fail to justify. I wish you good evening.' She removes her hand, turns her pale face towards him, as he walks silently to the door, and stops him once again, as he is about to open it. "'Do you intend to remain in the house any time? I heard you were writing in the library. Are you going to return there?' "'Only for my hat. I am going home.' She bows her eyes, rather than her head. The movement is so slight and curious, and he withdraws. Clear of the room, he looks at his watch, but is inclined to doubt it by a minute or thereabouts. There is a splendid clock upon the staircase, famous, as splendid clocks not often are, for its accuracy. "'And what do you say?' Mr. Tulkinghorn inquires, referring to it. "'What do you say?' If it said now, don't go home. What a famous clock hereafter! if it said to-night of all the nights that it has counted off to this old man of all the young and old men who have ever stood before it, don't go home. With its sharp clear bell, it strikes three-quarters after seven, and ticks on again. "'Why, you're worse than I thought you,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, muttering reproof to his watch. Two minutes wrong. At this rate you won't last my time. What a watch to return good for evil, if it ticked in answer— don't go home. He passes out into the streets and walks on, with his hands behind him, under the shadow of the lofty houses, many of whose mysteries, difficulties, mortgages, 
delicate affairs of all kinds, are treasured up within his old black satin waistcoat. He is in the confidence of the very bricks and mortar. The high chimney-stacks telegraph family secrets to him. Yet there is not a voice in a mile of them to whisper, "'Don't go home.' Through the stir and motion of the commoner streets, through the roar and jar of many vehicles, many feet, many voices, with the blazing shop-lights lighting him on, the west wind blowing him on, and the crowd pressing him on, he is pitilessly urged upon his way, and nothing meets him murmuring, "'Don't go home.' Arrived at last in his dull room to light his candles and look round and up, and see the Roman pointing from the ceiling, there is no new significance in the Roman's hand to-night, or in the flutter of the attendant groups, to give him the late warning, "'Don't come here.' It is a moonlight night, but the moon, being past the full, is only now rising over the great wilderness of London. The stars are shining as they shone above the turret leads at Chesney Wold. This woman, as he has of late been so accustomed to call her, looks out upon them. Her soul is turbulent within her. She is sick at heart and restless. The large rooms are too cramped and close. She cannot endure their restraint, and will walk alone in a neighbouring garden. Too capricious and imperious in all she does, to be the cause of much surprise in those about her as to anything she does, this woman, loosely muffled, goes out into the moonlight. Mercury attends with the key. Having opened the garden gate, he delivers the key into his lady's hands at her request, and is bidden to go back. She will walk there some time to ease her aching head. She may be an hour, she may be more. She needs no further escort. The gate shuts upon its spring with a clash, and he leaves her passing on into the dark shade of some trees. A fine night, and a bright large moon, and multitudes of stars. Mr. Tulkinghorn, in repairing to his cellar, and in opening and shutting those resounding doors, has to cross a little prison-like yard. He looks up casually, thinking what a fine night, what a bright large moon, what multitudes of stars. A quiet night, too. A very quiet night. When the moon shines very brilliantly, a solitude and stillness seem to proceed from her that influence even crowded places full of life. Not only is it a still night, on dusty high-roads, and on hill-summits, whence a wide expanse of country may be seen in repose, quieter and quieter, as it spreads away into a fringe of trees, against the sky, with the grey ghost of a bloom upon them. Not only is it a still night in gardens, and in woods, and on the river where the water-meadows are fresh and green, and the stream sparkles on among pleasant islands, murmuring weirs, and whispering rushes, not only does the stillness attend it as it flows, where houses cluster thick, where many bridges are reflected in it, where wharves and shipping make it black and awful, where it winds from these disfigurements through marshes whose grim beacons stand like skeletons washed ashore where it expands through the bolder region of rising grounds, rich in cornfield, windmill, and steeple, and where it mingles with the ever-heaving sea, not only is it a still night on the deep, and on the shore where the watcher stands to see the ship, with her spread wings cross the path of light, that appears to be presented to only him, but even on this stranger's wilderness of London there is some rest. Its steeples and towers, and its one great dome, grow more ethereal. Its smoky housetops lose their grossness in the pale effulgence. The noises that arise from the streets are fewer, and are softened, and the footsteps on the pavements pass more tranquilly away. In these fields of Mr. Tulkinghorn's inhabiting, 
where the shepherds play on chancery pipes that have no stop, and keep their sheep in the fold by hook and by crook until they have shorn them exceeding close, every noise is merged, this moonlight night, into a distant ringing hum, as if the city were a vast glass, vibrating. What's that? Who fired a gun or pistol? Where was it? The few foot-passengers start, stop, and stare about them. Some windows and doors are opened, and people come out to look. It was a loud report, and echoed and rattled heavily. It shook one house, or so a man says, who was passing. It has aroused all the dogs in that neighbourhood, who bark vehemently. Terrified cats scamper across the road. While the dogs are yet barking and howling, there is one dog howling like a demon. The church clocks, as if they were startled, too, begin to strike. The hum from the streets, likewise, seems to swell into a shout. But it is soon over. Before the last clock begins to strike ten, there is a lull. When it has ceased, the fine night, the bright large moon, and multitudes of stars are left at peace again. As Mr. Tulkinghorn being disturbed, his windows are dark and quiet, and his door is shut, it must be something unusual indeed to bring him out of his shell. Nothing is heard of him, nothing is seen of him. What power of cannon might it take to shake that rusty old man out of his immovable composure? For many years the persistent Roman has been pointing with no particular meaning from that ceiling. It is not likely that he has any new meaning in him to-night. Once pointing, always pointing, like any Roman, or even Briton, with a single idea. There he is, no doubt, in his impossible attitude, pointing, unavailingly, all night long. Moonlight, darkness, dawn, sunrise, day. There he is still, eagerly pointing, and no one minds him. But a little after the coming of the day come people to clean the rooms, and either the Roman has some new meaning in him, not expressed before, or the foremost of them goes wild, for looking up at his outstretched hand, and looking down at what is below it, that person shrieks and flies. The others, looking in as the first one looked, shriek and fly too, and there is an alarm in the street. What does it mean? No light is admitted into the darkened chamber, and people unaccustomed to it enter, and treading softly but heavily, carry a weight into the bedroom and lay it down. There is whispering and wondering all day, strict search of every corner, careful tracing of steps, and careful noting of the disposition of every article of furniture. All eyes look up at the Roman, and all voices murmur, if he could only tell what he saw. He is pointing at a table with a bottle, nearly full of wine, and a glass upon it, and two candles that were blown out suddenly soon after being lighted. He is pointing at an empty chair, and at a stain upon the ground before it, that might be almost covered with a hand. These objects lie directly within his range. An excited imagination might suppose that there was something in them so terrific as to drive the rest of the composition— not only the attendant big-legged boys, but the clouds and flowers and pillars too, in short, the very body and soul of allegory, and all the brains it has, stark mad. It happens surely that every one who comes into the darkened room and looks at these things looks up at the Roman, and that he is invested in all eyes with mystery and awe, as if he were a paralysed dumb witness. So it shall happen surely— through many years to come, that ghostly stories shall be told of the stain upon the floor, so easy to be covered, so hard to be got out, and that the Roman pointing from the ceiling shall point, 
so long as dust and damp and spiders spare him, with far greater significance than he ever had in Mr. Tulkinghorn's time, and with a deadly meaning. For Mr. Tulkinghorn's time is over for evermore, and the Roman pointed at the murderous hand uplifted against his life, and pointed helplessly at him, from night to morning, lying face downward on the floor, shot through the heart. End of chapter 48「Chapter forty nine of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty nine. Dutiful Friendship. A great annual occasion has come round in the establishment of Mr. Matthew Bagnet, otherwise Lignum Vitae, ex-artilleryman and present bassoon player an occasion of feasting and festival, a celebration of a birthday in the family. It is not Mr. Bagnet's birthday. Mr. Bagnet merely distinguishes that epoch in the musical instrument business by kissing the children with an extra smack before breakfast, smoking an additional pipe after dinner, and wondering towards evening what his poor old mother is thinking about it a subject of infinite speculation, and rendered so by his mother having departed this life twenty years. Some men rarely revert to their father, but seem, in the bank-books of their remembrance, to have transferred all the stock of filial affection into their mother's name. Mr. Bagnet is one of these. Perhaps his exalted appreciation of the merits of the old girl causes him usually to make the noun-substantive goodness of the feminine gender. It is not the birthday of one of the three children— those occasions are kept with some marks of distinction, but they rarely overleap the bounds of happy returns in a pudding. On young Woolwich's last birthday, Mr. Bagnet certainly did, after observing on his growth and general advancement, proceed, in a moment of profound reflection, on the changes wrought by time, to examine him in the catechism, accomplishing with extreme accuracy that questions number one and two, "'What is your name?' and "'Who gave you that name?' but there failing in the exact precision of his memory and substituting for number three the question and how do you like that name which he propounded with a sense of its importance in itself so edifying and improving as to give it quite an orthodox air this however was a speciality on that particular birthday and not a general solemnity it is the old girl's birthday and that is the greatest holiday and reddest letter day in mr bagnet's calendar the auspicious event is always commemorated according to certain forms settled and prescribed by mr bagnet some years since mr bagnet being deeply convinced that to have a pair of fowls for dinner is to attain the highest pitch of imperial luxury invariably goes forth himself very early in the morning of this day to buy a pair he is as invariably taken in by the vendor and installed in the possession of the oldest inhabitants of any coop in europe returning with these triumphs of toughness tied up in a clean blue and white cotton handkerchief essential to the arrangements he in a casual manner invites mrs bagnet to declare at breakfast what she would like for dinner mrs bagnet by a coincidence never known to fail replying fowls mr bagnet instantly produces his bundle from a place of concealment amidst general amazement and rejoicing 
He further requires that the old girl shall do nothing all day long, but sit in her very best gown, and be served by himself and the young people. As he is not illustrious for his cookery, this may be supposed to be a matter of state, rather than enjoyment on the old girl's part, but she keeps her state with all imaginable cheerfulness. On this present birthday, Mr. Bagnet has accomplished the usual preliminaries. He has bought two specimens of poultry, which, if there be any truth in adages, were certainly not caught with chaff, to be prepared for the spit. He has amazed and rejoiced the family by their unlooked-for production. He is himself directing the roasting of the poultry, and Mrs. Bagnet, with her wholesome brown fingers itching to prevent what she sees going wrong, sits in her gown of ceremony an honoured guest. Quebec and Malta lay the cloth for dinner, while Woolwich, serving, as beseems him under his father, keeps the fowls revolving. To these young scullions Mrs. Bagnet occasionally imparts a wink, or a shake of the head, or a crooked face, as they make mistakes. "'At half after one,' says Mr. Bagnet, "'to the minute, they'll be done.' Mrs. Bagnet, with anguish, beholds one of them at a standstill before the fire, and beginning to burn. "'You shall have a dinner, old girl,' says Mr. Bagnet, "'fit for a queen.' Mrs. Bagnet shows her white teeth cheerfully, but to the perception of her son betrays so much uneasiness of spirit that he is impelled by the dictates of affection to ask her, with his eyes, what is the matter, thus standing with his eyes wide open, more oblivious of the fowls than before, and not affording the least hope of a return to consciousness. Fortunately his elder sister perceives the cause of the agitation in Mrs. Bagnet's breast, and with an admonitory poke recalls him, the stopped fowls going round again. Mrs. Bagnet closes her eyes in the intensity of her relief. "'George will look us up,' says Mr. Bagnet, "'at half after four, to the moment. How many years, old girl, has George looked us up this afternoon?' "'Ah, oh, lignum, lignum, as many as make an old woman of a young woman. I begin to think just about that, and no less.' returns Mrs. Bagnet, laughing and shaking her head. "'Old girl,' says Mr. Bagnet, "'never mind. You'd be as young as ever you was, if you wasn't younger, which you are, as everybody knows.' Quebec and Malta here exclaim, with clapping of hands, that Bluffy is sure to bring Mother something, and begin to speculate on what it will be. "'Do you know, Lignum,' says Mrs. Bagnet, casting a glance on the tablecloth, and winking salt at Malta with her right eye, and shaking the pepper away from Quebec with her head. "'I begin to think George is in the roving way again.' "'George,' returns Mr. Bagnet, "'will never desert, and leave his old comrade and the latch. Don't be afraid of it.' "'No, Lignum, no. I don't say he will. I don't think he will.' "'But if he could get over this money-trouble of his, "'I believe he would be off.' "'Mr. Bagnet asks why. "'Well,' returns his wife, considering, "'George seems to me to be getting a little impatient and restless. "'I don't say but what he's as free as ever. "'Of course he must be free, or he wouldn't be George. "'But he smarts and seems put out.' "'He's extra-drilled,' says Mr. Bagnet, "'by a lawyer.' "'Who would put the devil out?' 
"'There's something in that,' his wife assents. "'But so it is, Lignum.' Further conversation is prevented, for the time, by the necessity under which Mr. Bagnet finds himself of directing the whole force of his mind to the dinner, which is a little endangered by the dry humour of the fowls in not yielding any gravy, and also by the made gravy acquiring no flavour, and turning out of a flaxen complexion. With a similar perverseness, the potatoes crumble off forks in the process of peeling, upheaving from their centres in every direction, as if they were subject to earthquakes. The legs of the fowls, too, are longer than could be desired, and extremely scaly. Overcoming these disadvantages to the best of his ability, Mr. Bagnet at last dishes, and they sit down at table, Mrs. Bagnet occupying the guest's place at his right hand. It is well for the old girl that she has but one birthday in a year, for two such indulgences in poultry might be injurious. Every kind of finer tendon and ligament that is in the nature of poultry to possess is developed in these specimens in the singular form of guitar-strings. Their limbs appear to have struck roots into their breasts and bodies as aged trees strike roots into the earth. Their legs are so hard as to encourage the idea that they must have devoted the greater part of their long and arduous lives to pedestrian exercises and the walking of matches. But Mr. Bagnet, unconscious of these little defects, sets his heart on Mrs. Bagnet eating a most severe quantity of the delicacies before her. And as that good old girl would not cause him a moment's disappointment on any day, least of all on such a day, for any consideration, she imperils her digestion fearfully. How young Woolwich cleans the drumsticks, without being of ostrich descent, his anxious mother is at a loss to understand. The old girl has another trial to undergo, after the conclusion of the repast, in sitting in state to see the room cleared, the hearth swept, and the dinner-service washed up and polished in the backyard. The great delight and energy with which the two young ladies apply themselves to these duties, turning up their skirts in imitation of their mother, and skating in and out on little scaffolds of patterns, inspire the highest hopes for the future, but some anxiety for the present. The same causes lead to confusion of tongues, a clattering of crockery, a rattling of tin mugs, a whisking of brooms, and an expenditure of water all in excess, while the saturation of the young ladies themselves is almost too moving a spectacle for Mrs. Bagnet to look upon with the calmness proper to her position. At last the various cleansing processes are triumphantly completed. Quebec and Malta appear in fresh attire, smiling and dry. Pipes, tobacco, and something to drink are placed upon the table and the old girl enjoys the first peace of mind she ever knows on the day of this delightful entertainment. When Mr. Bagnet takes his usual seat, the hands of the clock are very near to half-past four, as they mark it accurately. Mr. Bagnet announces, "'George! Military time!' It is George, and he has hearty congratulations for the old girl, whom he kisses on the great occasion, and for the children, and for Mr. Bagnet." "'Happy returns to all,' says Mr. George. "'But, George, old man,' cries Mrs. Bagnet, looking at him curiously, "'what's come to you?' "'Come to me?' "'Ah! Oh, you're so white, George, for you, and look so shocked. Now, don't he, Lignum?' "'George,' says Mr. Bagnet, "'tell the old girl what's the matter?' "'I didn't know I looked white.' says the trooper, passing his hand over his brow, and I didn't know I looked shocked. 
and I'm sorry I do. But the truth is, that boy who was taken in at my place died yesterday afternoon, and it has rather knocked me over. Poor creature, says Mrs. Bagnet with a mother's pity. Is he gone? Dear, dear. I didn't mean to say anything about it, for it's not birthday talk, but you have got it out of me, you see, before I sit down. I should have roused up in a minute, says the trooper, making himself speak more gaily. But you're so quick, Mrs. Bagnet. You're right. The old girl, says Mr. Bagnet, is as quick as powder. And what's more, she's the subject of the day, and we'll stick to her, cries Mr. George. See here, I've brought a little brooch along with me. It's a poor thing, you know, but it's a keepsake. That's all the good it is, Mrs. Bagnet. Mr. George produces his present, which is greeted with admiring leapings and clappings by the young family, and with a species of reverential admiration by Mr. Bagnet. Old girl, says Mr. Bagnet, tell em my opinion of it. Why, it's a wonder, George, Mrs. Bagnet exclaims. It's the beautifulest thing that ever was seen. Good, says Mr. Bagnet, my opinion. It's so pretty, George, cries Mrs. Bagnet, turning it on all sides and holding it out at arm's length, that it seems too choice for me. Bad, says Mr. Bagnet, not my opinion. But whatever it is, a hundred thousand thanks, old fellow, says Mrs. Bagnet, her eyes sparkling with pleasure and her hand stretched out to him. "'And though I've been a cross-grained soldier's wife to you sometimes, George, we are as strong friends, I am sure, in reality, as ever can be. Now you shall fasten it on yourself for good luck, if you will, George.' The children close up to see it done, and Mr. Bagnet looks over young Woolwich's head to see it done, with an interest so maturely wooden, yet pleasantly childish, that Mrs. Bagnet cannot help laughing in her airy way, and saying, "'Oh, Lignum! Lignum! What a precious old chap you are!' But the trooper fails to fasten the brooch. His hand shakes. He is nervous, and it falls off. "'Would any one believe this?' says he, catching it as it drops and looking round. "'I'm so out of sorts, I bungle at an easy job like this.' Mrs. Bagnet concludes that for such a case there is no remedy like a pipe, and fastening the brooch herself in a twinkling, causes the trooper to be inducted into his usual snug place, and the pipes to be got into action. "'If that don't bring you round, George,' says she, "'just throw your eye across here at your present now and then, and the two together must do it.' "'You ought to do it of yourself,' George answers. "'I know that very well, Mrs. Bagnet. "'I'll tell you how, one way and another, "'the blues have got to be too many for me. "'Here was this poor lad. "'Twas dull work to see him dying as he did, "'and not to be able to help him.' "'What do you mean, George? "'You did help him. "'You took him under your roof.' "'I helped him so far, but that's little.' I mean, Mrs. Bagnet, there he was, dying, without ever having been taught much more than to know his right hand from his left, and he was too far gone to be helped out of that. Ah, oh, poor creature, says Mrs. Bagnet. Then, says the trooper, not yet lighting his pipe, 
and passing his heavy hand over his hair, "'that brought up Gridley in a man's mind. "'His was a bad case, too, in a different way. "'And the two got mixed up in a man's mind "'with a flinty old rascal who had to do with both. "'And to think of that rusty carbine, stock and barrel, "'standing up on end in his corner, hard, indifferent, "'taking everything so evenly, "'it made flesh and blood tingle, I do assure you.' "'My advice to you,' returns Mrs. Bagnet, "'is to light your pipe and tingle that way. "'It's wholesomer and comfortabler and better for the health altogether.' Ah, "'You're right,' says the trooper, "'and I'll do it.' So he does it, though still with an indignant gravity that impresses the young Bagnets, and even causes Mr. Bagnet to defer the ceremony of drinking Mrs. Bagnet's health— always given by himself on these occasions, in a speech of exemplary terseness. But the young ladies, having composed what Mr. Bagnus is in the habit of calling the mixture, and George's pipe being now in a glow, Mr. Bagnet considers it his duty to proceed to the toast of the evening. He addresses the assembled company in the following terms. George, Wallach, Quebec, Malta, this is her birthday. Take a day's march, and you won't find such another. Here's towards her. The toast having been drunk with enthusiasm, Mrs. Bagnet returns thanks in a neat address of corresponding brevity. This model composition is limited to the three words, And wishing yours, which the old girl follows up with a nod at everybody in succession, and a well-regulated swig of the mixture. This she again follows up, on the present occasion, by the wholly unexpected explanation, "'He is a man!' "'Here is a man, much to the astonishment of the little company, looking in at the parlour door. He is a sharp-eyed man, a quick, keen man, and he takes in everybody's look at him, all at once, individually and collectively, in a manner that stamps him a remarkable man. "'George,' says the man, nodding, "'How do you find yourself?' "'Why, it's Bucket!' cries Mr. George. "'Yes,' says the man, coming in and closing the door. "'I was going down the street here, when I happened to stop and look in at the musical instruments in the shop-window. A friend of mine is in want of a second-hand violin-cella of a good tone, and I saw a party enjoying themselves, and I thought it was you in the corner. I thought I couldn't be mistaken.' "'How goes the world with you, George, at the present moment? "'Pretty smooth. "'And with you, ma'am. "'And with you, governor. "'And, Lord,' says Mr. Bucket, opening his arms, "'here's children, too. "'You may do anything with me if you only show me children. "'Give us a kiss, me pets. "'No occasion to inquire who your father and mother is. "'Never saw such a likeness in me life.' "'Mr. Bucket, not unwelcome, "'has sat himself down next to Mr. George.' and taken Quebec and Malta on his knees. "'You pretty dears,' says Mr. Bucket, "'give us another kiss. It's the only thing I'm greedy in. Lord bless you! How healthy you look! And what may be the ages of these two, ma'am? I should put him down at the figures of about uh, eight and ten. "'You're very near, sir,' says Mrs. Bagnet. "'I generally am near,' returns Mr. Bucket. "'Being so fond of children. "'A friend of mine has had nineteen of them, ma'am, "'all by one mother, 
and she's still as fresh and rosy as the morning. Not so much so as yourself, but upon my soul she comes near you. And what do you call these, my darling? pursues Mr. Bucket, pinching Malta's cheeks. These are peaches, these are. Bless your heart! And what do you think about father? Do you think father could recommend a second-hand violoncello of a good tone for Mr. Bucket's friend, my dear? My name's Bucket. Ain't that a funny name? These blandishments have entirely won the family heart. Mrs. Bagnet forgets the day to the extent of filling a pipe and glass for Mr. Bucket, and waiting upon him hospitably. She would be glad to receive so pleasant a character under any circumstances, but she tells them that, as a friend of George's, she is particularly glad to see him this evening, for George has not been in his usual spirits. "'Not in his usual spirits!' exclaims Mr. Bucket. "'Why, I never heard of such a thing. What's the matter, George? You don't intend to tell me you've been out of spirits. What should you be out of spirits for? You haven't got anything on your mind, you know.' "'Nothing particular,' returns the trooper. "'I should think not,' rejoins Mr. Bucket. "'What could you have on your mind, you know? "'And have these pets got anything on their minds, eh? <laughs> "'Not they, but they'll be upon the minds of some of the young fellows "'some of these days, and make them precious low-spirited. "'I ain't much of a prophet, but I can tell you that, ma'am.' "'Mrs. Bagnet, quite charmed, hopes Mr. Bucket has a family of his own.' "'There, ma'am,' says Mr. Bucket, "'would you believe it? No, I haven't. My wife and a lodger constitute my family. Mrs. Bucket is as fond of children as myself, and as wishful to have em, but no. So it is. Worldly goods are divided unequally, and man must not repine. What a very nice backyard, ma'am! Any way out of that yard now?' "'There is no way out of that yard.' "'Ain't there really?' says Mr. Bucket. "'I should have thought there might have been. "'Well, I don't know as I ever saw a backyard that took my fancy more. "'Would you allow me to look at it?' "'Thank you. "'No, I see there's no way out. "'But what a very good proportioned yard it is!' "'Having cast his sharp eye all about it, "'Mr. Bucket returns to his chair next to his friend Mr. George, "'and pats Mr. George affectionately on the shoulder.' "'How are your spirits now, George?' "'All right now,' returns the trooper. "'That's your sort,' says Mr. Bucket. "'Why should you ever have been otherwise? "'A man of your fine figure and constitution "'has no right to be out of spirits. "'That ain't a chest to be out of spirits, is it, ma'am? "'And you haven't got anything on your mind, you know, George. "'What could you have on your mind?' "'Somewhat harping on this phrase,' Considering the extent and variety of his conversational powers, Mr. Bucket twice or thrice repeats it to the pipe he lights, and with a listening face that is particularly his own. But the sun of his sociality soon recovers from this brief eclipse and shines again. "'And this is brother, is it, my dears?' says Mr. Bucket, referring to Quebec and Malta for information on the subject of young Woolwich. "'And a nice brother he is!' "'Half-brother, I mean to say, for he's too old to be your boy, ma'am.' <laughs> "'I can certify at all events that he is nobody else's,' returns Mrs. Bagnet, laughing. "'Well, you do surprise me. Yet he's like you, there's no denying. Lord, he's wonderfully like you. 
but about what you may call the brow, you know. There his father comes out. Mr. Bucket compares the faces with one eye shut up, while Mr. Bagnet smokes in stolid satisfaction. This is an opportunity for Mrs. Bagnet to inform him that the boy is George's godson. "'George's godson, is he?' rejoins Mr. Bucket, with extreme cordiality. "'I must shake hands over again with George's godson. Godfather and godson do credit to one another. And what do you intend to make of him, ma'am? Does he show any turn for any musical instrument?' Mr. Bagnet suddenly interposes. "'Please the fife. Beautiful.' "'Would you believe it, Governor?' says Mr. Bucket, struck by the coincidence, that when I was a boy, I played the fife myself. Not in a scientific way, as I expect he does, but by ear. Lord bless you! British Grenadiers! There's a tune to warm an Englishman up. Could you give us British Grenadiers, my fine fellow? Nothing could be more acceptable to the little circle than this call upon young Woolwich, who immediately fetches his fife, and performs the stirring melody. During which performance, Mr. Bucket, much enlivened, beats time, and never fails to come in sharp with the burden, British Grenadiers. In short, he shows so much musical taste, that Mr. Bagnet actually takes his pipe from his lips to express his conviction that he is a singer. Mr. Bucket receives the harmonious impeachment so modestly, confessing how that he did once chaunt a little, for the expression of the feelings of his own bosom, and with no presumptuous idea of entertaining his friends, that he is asked to sing. Not to be behindhand in the sociality of the evening, he complies, and gives them, "'Believe me, if all those endearing young charms!' This ballad, he informs Mrs. Bagnet, he considers to have been his most powerful ally in moving the heart of Mrs. Bucket, when a maiden, and inducing her to approach the altar. Mr. Bucket's own words are, "'To come up to the scratch!' This sparkling stranger is such a new and agreeable feature in the evening, that Mr. George, who testified no great emotions of pleasure on his entrance, begins, in spite of himself, to be rather proud of him. He is so friendly, is a man of so many resources, and so easy to get on with, that it is something to have him known there. Mr. Bagnet becomes, after another pipe, so sensible of the value of his acquaintance, that he solicits the honour of his company on the old girl's next birthday. If anything can more closely cement and consolidate the esteem which Mr. Bucket has formed for the family, it is the discovery of the nature of the occasion. He drinks to Mrs. Bagnet with a warmth approaching to rapture, engages himself for that day twelve months more than thankfully, makes a memorandum of the day in a large black pocket-book with a girdle to it, and breathes a hope that Mrs. Bucket and Mrs. Bagnet may before then become, in a manner, sisters. As he says himself, what is public life without private ties? He is in his humble way a public man, but it is not in that sphere that he finds happiness. No, it must be sought within the confines of domestic bliss. It is natural under these circumstances that he, in his turn, should remember the friend to whom he is indebted for so promising an acquaintance. And he does. He keeps very close to him. Whatever the subject of the conversation, he keeps a tender eye upon him. He waits to walk home with him. He is interested in his very boots, and observes even them attentively, as Mr. George sits smoking cross-legged in the chimney-corner. 
At length Mr. George rises to depart. At the same moment Mr. Bucket, with the secret sympathy of friendship, also rises. He dotes upon the children to the last, and remembers the commission he has undertaken for an absent friend. "'Respecting that uh, second-hand while in cella, Governor, could you recommend me such a thing?' "'Scores,' says Mr. Bagnet. "'I am obliged to you,' returns Mr. Bucket, squeezing his hand. "'You're a friend in need. A good tone, mind you. My friend is a regular dab at it. Ecard!' He saws away at Mozart, and Handel, and the rest of the bigwigs, like a thorough workman. And you needn't, says Mr. Bucket in a considerate and private voice, you needn't commit yourself to too low a figure, Governor. I don't want to pay too large a price for my friend, but I want you to have your proper percentage, and be remunerated for your loss of time. That is but fair. Every man must live, and ought to it. Mr. Bagnet shakes his head at the old girl to the effect that they have found a jewel of price. "'Suppose I was to give you a look in, say, at uh, half after ten to-morrow morning. Perhaps you could name the figures of a few while and cellars of a good tone,' says Mr. Bucket. "'Nothing easier. Mr. and Mrs. Bagnet both engaged to have the requisite information ready, and even hint to each other at the practicability of having a small stock collected there for approval.' "'Thank you,' says Mr. Bucket. "'Thank you. Good night, ma'am. Good night, governor. Good night, darlings. I am much obliged to you for one of the pleasantest evenings I ever spent in my life.' They, on the contrary, are much obliged to him for the pleasure he has given them in his company, and so they part with many expressions of goodwill on both sides. "'Now, George, old boy,' says Mr. Bucket, taking his arm at the shop-door, "'Come along.' As they go down the little street, and the Bagnets pause for a minute looking after them, Mrs. Bagnet remarks to the worthy Lignum that Mr. Bucket almost clings to George-like, and seems to be really fond of him. The neighbouring streets being narrow and ill-paved, it is a little inconvenient to walk there two abreast and arm in arm. Mr. George, therefore, soon proposes to walk singly. But Mr. Bucket, who cannot make up his mind to relinquish his friendly hold, replies, "'Wait half a minute, George. I should wish to speak to you first.' Immediately afterwards he twists him into a public-house and into a parlour, where he confronts him and claps his own back against the door. "'Now, George,' says Mr. Bucket, "'duty is duty, and friendship is friendship. I never want the two to clash if I can help it. I have endeavoured to make things pleasant to-night.' and I put it to you whether I've done it or not. You must consider yourself in custody, George. Custody? What for? returns the trooper, thunderstruck. Now, George, says Mr. Bucket, urging a sensible view of the case upon him with his fat forefinger, duty, as you know very well, is one thing, and conversation is another. It's my duty to inform you that any observations you may make will be liable to be used against you. Therefore, George, be careful what you say. You don't happen to have heard of a murder. Murder? Now, George, says Mr. Bucket, keeping his forefinger in an impressive state of action, bear in mind what I've said to you. I ask you nothing. You've been in low spirits this afternoon. I say you don't happen to have heard of a murder. No, 
"'Where has there been a murder?' "'Now, George,' says Mr. Bucket, "'don't you go and commit yourself. "'I'm a-going to tell you what I want you for. "'There has been a murder in Lincoln's Inn Fields, "'gentleman of the name of Tulkinghorn. "'He was shot last night. "'I want you for that.' "'The trooper sinks upon a seat behind him, "'and great drops start out upon his forehead, "'and a deadly pallor overspreads his face.' Bucket, it's not possible. Mr. Tulkinghorn has been killed, and that you suspect me? George, returns Mr. Bucket, keeping his forefinger going, it is certainly possible, because it's the case. This deed was done last night at ten o'clock. Now, you know where you were last night at ten o'clock, and you'll be able to prove it, no doubt. Last night? Last night? repeats the trooper thoughtfully, then it flashes upon him. Why, great heaven, I was there last night. So, I have understood, George, returns Mr. Bucket with great deliberation. So I have understood. Likewise, you have been very often there. You have been seen hanging about the place, and you have been heard more than once in a wrangle with him, and it's possible, I don't say it certainly so, mind you, but it's possible that he may have been heard to call you a threatening, murdering, dangerous fellow. The trooper gasps as if he would admit it all if he could speak. Now, George, continues Mr. Bucket, putting his hat upon the table, with an air of business rather in the upholstery way than otherwise, my wish is, as it has been all the evening, to make things pleasant. I tell you plainly, there's a reward out of hundred guineas, offered by Sir Lester Dedlock, baronet. You and me have always been pleasant together, but I have got a duty to discharge, and if that hundred guineas is to be made, it may as well be made by me as any other man. On all of which accounts, I should hope it was clear to you that I must have you, and that I'm damned if I don't have you. Am I to call in any assistance, or is the trick done?' Mr. George has recovered himself, and stands up like a soldier. "'Come,' he says, "'I am ready.' "'George,' continues Mr. Bucket, "'wait a bit.' With his upholsterer manner, as if the trooper were a window to be fitted up, he takes from his pocket a pair of handcuffs. "'This is a serious charge, George, and such is my duty.' The trooper flushes angrily, and hesitates a moment but holds out his two hands clasped together, and says, "'There, put them on.' Mr. Bucket adjusts them in a moment. "'How do you find them? Are they comfortable? If not, say so, for I wish to make things as pleasant as is consistent with my duty, and I've got another pair in my pocket.' This remark he offers like a most respectable tradesman, anxious to execute an order neatly, and to the perfect satisfaction of his customer. "'They'll do as they are.' "'Very well. Now you see, George,' he takes a cloak from a corner, and begins adjusting it about the trooper's neck, "'I was mindful of your feelings when I come out, and brought this on purpose. There. Who's the wiser?' "'Only I,' returns the trooper. "'But as I know it, do me one more good turn, and pull my hat over my eyes.' "'Really, though, do you mean it? Ain't it a pity?' It looks so—' "'I can't look 
chance men in the face with these things on, Mr. George hurriedly replies, Do, for God's sake, pull my hat forward. So strongly entreated, Mr. Bucket complies, puts his own hat on, and conducts his prize into the streets, the trooper marching on as steadily as usual, though with his head less erect, and Mr. Bucket steering him with his elbow over the crossings and up the turnings. End of chapter 49chapter 50 of bleak house this librivox recording is in the public domain recorded by mill nicholson bleak house by charles dickens chapter 50 esther's narrative it happened that when i came home from deal i found a note from caddy jellyby as we always continued to call her informing me that her health which had been for some time very delicate was worse and that she would be more glad than she could tell me if I would go to see her. It was a note of few lines, written from the couch on which she lay, and enclosed to me in another from her husband, in which he seconded her entreaty with much solicitude. Caddy was now the mother, and I the godmother, of such a poor little baby, such a tiny old-faced mite, with a countenance that seemed to be scarcely anything but cap-border, and a little lean, long-fingered hand, always clenched under its chin. It would lie in this attitude all day, with its bright specks of eyes open, wondering, as I used to imagine, how it came to be so small and weak. Whenever it was moved it cried, but at all other times it was so patient that the sole desire of its life appeared to be to lie quiet and think. It had curious little dark veins in its face, and curious little dark marks under its eyes, like faint remembrances of poor Caddy's inky days, and altogether, to those who were not used to it, it was quite a piteous little sight. But it was enough for Caddy that she was used to it. The projects with which she beguiled her illness, for little Esther's education, and little Esther's marriage, and even for her own old age as the grandmother of little Esther's little Esther's, was so prettily expressive of devotion to this pride of her life, that I should be tempted to recall some of them, but for the timely remembrance that I am getting on irregularly as it is. To return to the letter, Caddy had a superstition about me, which had been strengthening in her mind ever since that night long ago, when she had lain asleep with her head in my lap. She almost, I think I must say quite, believed that I did her good whenever I was near her. Now, although this was such a fancy of the affectionate girls that I am almost ashamed to mention it, still it might have all the force of a fact when she was really ill. Therefore I set off to Caddy, with my guardian's consent, post-haste, and she and Prince made so much of me that there never was anything like it. Next day I went again to sit with her, and next day I went again. It was a very easy journey for I had only to rise a little earlier in the morning, and keep my accounts, and attend to housekeeping matters, before leaving home. But when I had made these three visits, my guardian said to me, on my returning at night, "'Now, little woman, little woman, this will never do. Constant dropping will wear away a stone, and constant coaching will wear out a dame Durden. 
we will go to London for a while and take possession of our old lodgings.' "'Not for me, dear guardian,' said I, "'for I never feel tired, which was strictly true. I was only too happy to be in such request.' "'For me, then,' returned my guardian, "'or for Ada, or for both of us. It is somebody's birthday to-morrow, I think.' "'Ah, truly, I think it is.' said I, kissing my darling, who would be twenty-one to-morrow. "'Well,' observed my guardian, half pleasantly, half seriously, "'that's a great occasion, and will give my fair cousin some necessary business to transact in assertion of her independence, and will make London a more convenient place for all of us. So, to London we will go. That being settled, there is another thing.' "'How have you left Caddy?' "'Very unwell, guardian. "'I fear it will be some time before she regains her health and strength.' "'What do you call some time now?' "'Asked my guardian thoughtfully. "'Some weeks, I am afraid.' "'Ah!' "'He began to walk about the room with his hands in his pockets, "'showing that he had been thinking as much. "'Now, what do you say about her doctor?' "'Is he a good doctor, my love?' I felt obliged to confess that I knew nothing to the contrary, but that Prince and I had agreed only that evening that we would like his opinion to be confirmed by some one. "'Well, you know,' returned my guardian quickly, "'there's Woodcourt.' I had not meant that, and was rather taken by surprise. For a moment, all that I had had in my mind in connection with Mr. Woodcourt seemed to come back and confuse me. "'You don't object to him, little woman?' "'Object to him, guardian? Oh, no!' "'And you don't think the patient would object to him?' "'So far from that, I had no doubt of her being prepared to have a great reliance on him, and to like him very much.' I said that he was no stranger to her personally, for she had seen him often in his kind attendance on Miss Flight. "'Very good,' said my guardian. "'He has been here to-day, my dear, and I will see him about it to-morrow.' I felt in this short conversation, though I did not know how, for she was quiet and we interchanged no look, that my dear girl well remembered how merrily she had clasped me round the waist— when no other hands than Caddy's had brought me the little parting token. This caused me to feel that I ought to tell her, and Caddy too, that I was going to be the mistress of Bleak House, and that if I avoided that disclosure any longer, I might become less worthy in my own eyes of its master's love. Therefore, when we went upstairs, and had waited listening until the clock struck twelve, in order that only I might be the first to wish my darling all good wishes on her birthday, and to take her to my heart, I set before her, just as I had set before myself, the goodness and honour of her cousin John, and the happy life that was in store for me. If ever my darling were fonder of me at one time than another, in all our intercourse, she was surely fondest of me that night and I was so rejoiced to know it, and so comforted by the sense of having done right in casting this last idle reservation away, that I was ten times happier than I had been before. I had scarcely thought it a reservation a few hours ago, but now that it was gone, I felt as if I understood its nature better. Next day we went to London, 
we found our old lodging vacant, and in half an hour were quietly established there, as if we had never gone away. Mr. Woodcourt dined with us to celebrate my darling's birthday, and we were as pleasant as we could be, with the great blank among us that Richard's absence naturally made on such an occasion. After that day I was for some weeks, eight or nine as I remember, very much with Caddy, and thus it fell out that I saw less of Ada at this time than any other since we had first come together, except the time of my own illness. She often came to Caddy's, but our function there was to amuse and cheer her, and we did not talk in our usual confidential manner. Whenever I went home at night we were together, but Caddy's rest was broken by pain, and I often remained to nurse her. With her husband and her poor little mite of a baby to love, and their home to strive for, what a good creature Caddy was! So self-denying, so uncomplaining, so anxious to get well on their account, so afraid of giving trouble, and so thoughtful of the unassisted labours of her husband, and the comforts of old Mr. Turveydrop. I had never known the best of her until now, and it seemed so curious that her pale face and helpless figure should be lying there day after day, where dancing was the business of life, where the kit and the apprentices began early every morning in the ballroom, and where the untidy little boy waltzed by himself in the kitchen all the afternoon. At Caddy's request I took the supreme direction of her apartment, trimmed it up, and pushed her, couch and all, into a lighter and more airy and more cheerful corner than she had yet occupied. Then every day, when we were in our neatest array, I used to lay my small, small namesake in her arms, and sit down to chat, or work, or read to her. It was at one of the first of these quiet times that I told Caddy about Bleak House. We had other visitors besides Ada. First of all we had Prince, who in his hurried intervals of teaching used to come softly in, and sit softly down the face of loving anxiety for Caddy and the very little child. Whatever Caddy's condition really was, she never failed to declare to Prince that she was all but well, which I, heaven forgive me, never failed to confirm. This would put Prince in such good spirits that he would sometimes take the kit from his pocket and play a chord or two to astonish the baby, which I never knew it to do in the least degree, for my tiny namesake never noticed it at all. Then there was Mrs. Jellyby. She would come occasionally, with her usual distraught manner, and sit calmly looking miles beyond her grandchild, as if her attention were absorbed by a young Boreaboolan on its native shores. As bright-eyed as ever, as serene, and as untidy, she would say, "'Well, Caddy, child, and how do you do to-day?' And then would sit amiably smiling, and taking no notice of the reply, would sweetly glide off into a calculation of the number of letters she had lately received, and answered, or of the coffee-bearing power of Boreaboola Gar. This she would always do with a serene contempt for our limited sphere of action, not to be disguised. Then there was old Mr. Turveydrop, who was from morning to night, and from night to morning, the subject of innumerable precautions. If the baby cried, it was nearly stifled lest the noise should make him uncomfortable. If the fire wanted stirring in the night, it was surreptitiously done, lest his rest should be broken. If Caddy required any little comfort that the house contained, she first carefully discussed whether he was likely to require it too. 
In return for this consideration, he would come into the room once a day, all but blessing it, showing a condescension and a patronage and a grace of manner in dispensing the light of his high-shouldered presence, from which I might have supposed him, if I had not known better, to have been the benefactor of Caddy's life. "'My Caroline,' he would say, making the nearest approach that he could to bending over her, "'tell me that you are better to-day.' "'Oh, much better, thank you, Mr. Turveydrop,' Caddy would reply. "'Delighted, enchanted, and our dear Miss Summerson, she is not quite prostrated by fatigue?' Here he would crease up his eyelids and kiss his fingers to me, though I am happy to say he had ceased to be particular in his attentions since I had been so altered. "'Not at all,' I would assure him. "'Charming! We must take care of our dear Caroline, Miss Summerson. We must spare nothing that will restore her. We must nourish her, my dear Caroline.' He would turn to his daughter-in-law with infinite generosity and protection. "'Want for nothing, my love. Frame a wish and gratify it, my daughter. Everything this house contains, everything my room contains, is at your service, my dear. Do not—' He would sometimes add in a burst of deportment— even allow my simple requirements to be considered if they should at any time interfere with your own my caroline your necessities are greater than mine he had established such a long prescriptive right to this deportment his son's inheritance from his mother that i several times knew both caddy and her husband to be melted to tears by these affectionate self-sacrifices "'Nay, my dears,' he would remonstrate, and when I saw Caddy's thin arm about his fat neck as he said it, I would be melted too, though not by the same process. "'Nay, nay, I have promised never to leave ye. Be dutiful and affectionate towards me, and I ask no other return. Now, bless ye, I am going to the park.' He would take the air there presently, and get an appetite for his hotel dinner. I hope I do old Mr. Turveydrop no wrong, but I never saw any better traits in him than these I faithfully record, except that he certainly conceived a liking for Peepy, and would take the child out walking with great pomp, always on those occasions sending him home before he went to dinner himself, and occasionally with a halfpenny in his pocket but even this disinterestedness was attended with no inconsiderable cost to my knowledge for before peepy was sufficiently decorated to walk hand in hand with the professor of deportment he had to be newly dressed at the expense of caddy and her husband from top to toe last of our visitors there was mr jellyby really when he used to come in in the evening and ask caddy in his meek voice how she was and then sit down with his head against the wall and make no attempt to say anything more i liked him very much if he found me bustling about doing any little thing he sometimes half took his coat off as if with an intention of helping by a great exertion but he never got any further his sole occupation was to sit with his head against the wall looking hard at the thoughtful baby 
and I could not quite divest my mind of a fancy that they understood one another. I have not counted Mr. Woodcourt among our visitors, because he was now Caddy's regular attendant. She soon began to improve under his care, but he was so gentle, so skilful, so unwearying in the pains he took, that it is not to be wondered at, I am sure. I saw a good deal of Mr. Woodcourt during this time, though not so much as might be supposed, for knowing Caddy to be safe in his hands, I often slipped home at about the hours when he was expected. We frequently met, notwithstanding. I was quite reconciled to myself now, but I still felt glad to think that he was sorry for me, and he still was sorry for me, I believed. He helped Mr. Badger in his professional engagements, which were numerous, and had as yet no settled projects for the future. It was when Caddy began to recover that I began to notice a change in my dear girl. I cannot say how it first presented itself to me, because I observed it in many slight particulars, which were nothing in themselves, and only became something when they were pieced together. But I made it out, by putting them together, that Ada was not so frankly cheerful with me as she used to be. Her tenderness for me was as loving and true as ever. I did not for a moment doubt that, but there was a quiet sorrow about her which she did not confide to me, and in which I traced some hidden regret. Now, I could not understand this, and I was so anxious for the happiness of my own pet that it caused me some uneasiness, and set me thinking often. At length, feeling sure that Ada suppressed this something from me, lest it should make me unhappy too, it came into my head that she was a little grieved for me, by what I had told her about Bleak House. How I persuaded myself that this was likely, I don't know. I had no idea that there was any selfish reference in my doing so. I was not grieved for myself. I was quite contented and quite happy. Still, that Ada might be thinking, for me, though I had abandoned all such thoughts, of what once was, but was now all changed, seemed so easy to believe that I believed it. What could I do to reassure my darling? I considered then, and show her that I had no such feelings. Well, I could only be as brisk and busy as possible, and that I had tried to be all along. However, as Caddy's illness had certainly interfered more or less with my home duties, though I had always been there in the morning to make my guardian's breakfast, and he had a hundred times laughed, and said there must be two little women, for his little woman was never missing, I resolved to be doubly diligent and gay. So I went about the house humming all the tunes I knew, and I sat working and working in a desperate manner, and I talked and talked, morning, noon, and night, and still there was the same shade between me and my darling. "'So, Dame Trot,' observed my guardian, shutting up his book one night, when we were all three together, so, Woodcourt has restored Caddy Jellyby to the full enjoyment of life again. Yes, I said, and to be repaid by such gratitude as hers is to be made rich, guardian. I wish it was, he returned, with all my heart. So did I, too, for that matter. I said so. Aye. "'We would make him as rich as a Jew if we knew how, would we not, little woman?' I laughed as I worked, and replied that I was not sure about that, for it might spoil him, and he might not be so useful, 
and there might be many who could ill spare him, as Miss Flight and Caddy herself and many others. "'True,' said my guardian, "'I had forgotten that. But we would agree to make him rich enough to live, I suppose, rich enough to work with tolerable peace of mind, rich enough to have his own happy home and his own household gods and household goddess, too, perhaps.' "'That was quite another thing,' I said. "'We must all agree in that.' "'To be sure,' said my guardian, "'all of us. I have a great regard for Woodcourt, a high esteem for him, and I have been sounding him delicately about his plans. It is difficult to offer aid to an independent man with that just kind of pride which he possesses, and yet I would be glad to do it, if I might, or if I knew how.' He seems half inclined for another voyage, but that appears like casting such a man away. "'It might open a new world to him,' said I. "'So it might, my little woman,' my guardian assented. "'I doubt if he expects much of the old world. Do you know, I have fancied that he sometimes feels some particular disappointment or misfortune encountered in it, "'You never heard of anything of that sort?' "'I shook my head. "'Hm,' said my guardian. "'I am mistaken, I dare say.' "'As there was a little pause here, "'which I thought, for my dear girl's satisfaction, "'had better be filled up, "'I hummed an air as I worked, "'which was a favourite with my guardian. "'And do you think Mr. Woodcourt will make another voyage?' "'I asked him, when I had hummed it quietly all through.' "'I don't quite know what to think, my dear, but I should say it was likely at present that he will give a long trip to another country.' "'I am sure he will take the best wishes of all our hearts with him wherever he goes,' said I. "'And though they are not riches, he will never be the poorer for them, guardian, at least.' "'Never, little woman,' he replied. I was sitting in my usual place, which was now beside my guardian's chair, that had not been my usual place before the letter, but it was now, I looked up to Ada, who was sitting opposite, and I saw, as she looked at me, that her eyes were filled with tears, and that tears were falling down her face. I felt that I had only to be placid and merry once for all, to undeceive my dear, and set her loving heart at rest. I really was so, and I had nothing to do but be myself." So I made my sweet girl lean upon my shoulder, how little thinking what was heavy on her mind, and I said she was not quite well, and put my arm about her, and took her upstairs. When we were in our own room, and when she might perhaps have told me what I was so unprepared to hear, I gave her no encouragement to confide in me. I never thought she stood in need of it. "'Oh, my dear good Esther,' said Ada, "'If I could only make up my mind to speak to you and my cousin John when you are together.' "'Why, my love,' I remonstrated, "'Ada, why should you not speak to us?' Ada only dropped her head and pressed me closer to her heart. "'You surely don't forget my beauty,' said I, smiling, "'what quiet old-fashioned people we are, and how I have settled down to be the discreetest of dames.' 
you don't forget how happily and peacefully my life is all marked out for me, and by whom. I am certain that you don't forget by what a noble character, Ada. That can never be. No, never, Esther. Why then, my dear, said I, there can be nothing amiss. And why should you not speak to us? Nothing amiss, Esther, returned Ada. Oh, when I think of all these years, and of all his fatherly care and kindness, and of the old relations among us, and of you, what shall I do? What shall I do? I looked at my child in some wonder, but I thought it better not to answer otherwise than by cheering her, and so I turned off into many little recollections of our life together, and prevented her from saying more. When she lay down to sleep, and not before, I returned to my guardian to say good-night, and then I came back to Ada, and sat near her for a little while. She was asleep, and I thought as I looked at her that she was a little changed. I had thought so more than once lately. I could not decide, even looking at her while she was unconscious, how she was changed, but something in the familiar beauty of her face looked different to me. My guardian's old hopes of her and Richard arose sorrowfully in my mind, and I said to myself, she has been anxious about him, and I wondered how that love would end. When I had come home from Caddy's while she was ill, I had often found Ada at work, and she had always put her work away, and I had never known what it was. Some of it now lay in a drawer near her, which was not quite closed. I did not open the drawer but I still rather wondered what the work could be, for it was evidently nothing for herself. And I noticed, as I kissed my dear, that she lay with one hand under her pillow, so that it was hidden. How much less amiable I must have been than they thought me! How much less amiable than I thought myself, to be so preoccupied with my own cheerfulness and contentment, as to think that it only rested with me to put my dear girl right, and set her mind at peace! but I lay down, self-deceived, in that belief, and I awoke in it next day, to find that there was still the same shade between me and my darling. End of chapter 50